Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. The message for everyone paying big wireless way too much. Please, for the love of everything good in this world, stop. With Mint, you can get premium wireless for just $15 a month. Of course, if you enjoy overpaying, no judgments, but that's weird. Okay, one judgment. Anyway, give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 for three months required. New subscribers only. Renew for 12 months to lock in savings. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See mintmobile.com. Welcome to An Earful Podcast presents Silver Screen Unseen, the podcast with me, Ryan Chisholm. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for coming back. And if this is your first time, welcome. On the first episode, we discussed Bong Joon-ho's Oscar-winning movie, Parasite. Go back and check that out. And here we are with episode two. On this episode, we are going to be covering Promising Young Woman, going through the full plot of the film, discussing the themes in detail. So if you haven't seen it yet, please go and watch it before listening as we reveal everything in this podcast so huge spoiler warning we will be discussing everything in the film this is more of a discussion podcast rather than a review so it's definitely something to come back to after watching a film For this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to the lovely Rebecca Wilcox. While she was cozied up in a hotel room after a long day on set, Rebecca is an actress and scriptwriter with a huge passion for horror, which is what formed our friendship over the last year through social media. I was a bit nervous about recording this one as I didn't want to come across as like a man giving his opinion online about a topic which is very sensitive to women. And I want to thank Rebecca for being so open and honest during this discussion, which tackles you know some difficult issues within the film's themes i should probably say as a warning there might be some triggering words mentioned but i hope we have handled this recording of the episode with care for anyone that's listening a few minor details you might pick up on i mentioned this being episode three basically we recorded this like back in february i had a plan to release four episodes at the launch of this podcast but then plans changed slightly i took the podcast to the guys at an earful podcast and now we've got this plan to release through them spread out over the next few weeks so with promising young woman finally coming out in the uk i wanted to bump this one up as soon as possible so yeah here we are um you'll hear me call it episode three or make reference to having a silver screen unseen twitter account but you can find us through everything by searching at an earful podcast stick around until the end of this episode to hear what we'll be covering in episode three and that means so if you haven't seen that next film you can go away and check it out ready for the release for the next podcast That's all from me, so enjoy this discussion of Promising Young Woman. You're listening to Silver Screen Unseen, and this is the third episode of our podcast. Today we're going to be chatting about Promising Young Woman, and I couldn't have asked for anyone else to join me on this one other than the fantastic Rebecca Wilcox. Oh, what an intro! <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I literally feel so big right now. I'm really good, how are you? I'm very good. I wish we had, because I don't do this as a video podcast, but for that moment then of you flicking your hair and like proper, this is your time to shine moment, that was fantastic. moment. <laughs> Hi, thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to talk about Promising Young Woman. That film was fucking insane. So thank you. I think my plan for these podcasts was always always to save reviews till the end, but I only seem to be talking about films I love. So I'm just saying it now, like I loved this film. It's so hard at the moment without cinemas to really engage in films sometimes. Like when you're watching in your room, you spend all day in your room. 
So I remember this time, I like, it was like a Saturday night, shut the lights off, put my phone away because I didn't want any distractions. And I was just zoned in for two hours and it blew me away. Exactly. We've got to make those cinema moments for ourselves, haven't we? Because like you said, like we just, you know, we're st- if you're listening to this, we're still in COVID right now. Hopefully you'll be listening to this in a field or in a shopping center, doing lots of lovely things, but we are currently in COVID. And yeah, I did exactly the same. I literally like every door was shut. I had my TV up to like that horrible volume where it's like your ears are burning. And I was just, cause I've been so, I've been excited about this film since like even the title came out. Cause it's just, and this is something I bored Ryan a lot with, but it's so nice to see a revenge film that is so feminine and so inherently rooted in female, but doesn't lose the grit of what we like about revenge films. And coming at a time as well, where I think, what's interesting actually, before I even say anything to do with horror, I think what's interesting is this film is marketed typically as a thriller. And I've noticed that when it's been marketed out to influencers, which is another conversation for another time, (laughs) they're all being like, oh my God, it's so shocking. I actually felt this film was a horror. I don't know about you, but I came into this fully, I would, imagine it on the shelves in my HMV in horror. Do you know what I mean? Like, and I think what's fantastic is it's, it's horror, but in this renaissance of horror we're having, it's not like your typical, you know, someone's head falls off or someone's guts fall out or the revenge is the sort of Sweeney Todd-esque Sabathon. It's horror because it's rooted in something very human that we all fear. And I think that's kind of what this is really exciting about this horror renaissance and what's exciting about this film is its heart is real. It's not the sort of fantastical horror we've kind of related a lot of revenge to where there are girls wielding chainsaws or there are arms falling off. It's very human, which is exciting. We like that. When you mentioned about like it being horror, then I don't think horror necessarily needs to be scary. It needs to tackle the like the uncomfortable topics and make you feel really just, I don't know, I don't know. It just, the reason I love horror so much is it's the, the genre that makes me feel the most. And this film made me feel, I, I wanted to get, you know, specifically a woman on to talk about this film because I didn't feel like just from the male perspective, I don't think you can give it quite everything that it deserves. I remember saying like, oh, the film, you know, it handles situations with care. But then I'm also thinking like, it's not my decision to make that. So if a woman was to say that they were uncomfortable with certain parts of it or like disagreed, with it, I'd be like, yeah, that's, you know, it's not my place to kind of decide that, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, like, it tackles the revenge movies that we have known for years. And I don't know, from my perspective, it, it seems they've done it a lot better than usually so we'll, yeah. we'll mention uh, we'll mention another title later on because before we end later on i do want to uh, bring that up we'll, we'll get onto that i realize i've kind of skipped over the introduction though we got too excited i'm so sorry that is typical like boom <laughs> tell us a bit about yourself and give a shout for your own podcast sure tell us about yourself <laughs> tell me about me so i'm becky i'm a sagittarius i'm not i'm a gemini why the hell would i say that i'm not joking so i'm becky i specialize in horror and as a career write horror scripts and have been quite lucky that that's progressing into something i'm going to hopefully be doing full-time a lot of what i practice within horror is about making women at the front of it i believe women are going to be the sort of renaissance in horror and i believe we should front a lot of it now because i think for years we've been like on the posters and we've been the victims but we've not necessarily been the voices that tell it so that's what i do um i run my own podcast that's sort of specifically about women in horror with my best friend and we just drink a lot so it's kind of like Alcoholics Anonymous with a bit of conversation behind it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that's that's me 
I hope that sounds exciting. I'm an exciting person. There we go. <laughs> no. I was listening back to um, The Witch's Brew earlier in the week when I knew that we were going to be talking. And I like that each time you kind of, you, you both have your own drink. So for the occasion, I'm not a drinker, but I made sure to bring myself an alcohol-free beer to... Uh... <laughs> oh, you're a good person. You're such a good person. Because Ryan... I know you said you were going to be on the wine. So again, this is probably why it's a good thing the cameras aren't on, because Ryan's there with his lovely, small, hand-sized, <laughs> non-alcoholic beer, and I'm here with... M&S's very own Rosé 2019 $7.99 for those who are interested. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, so horror is the heart of what I am and what I do. And I, I completely agree with what Ryan said. I think fundamentally horror doesn't have to be scary. It just has to sort of discuss something human that makes us feel provoked or perhaps frightened to what we've allowed to happen. And for, it's like a good force for change. I've always thought horror is a really intriguing force for change. And I also think it makes a lot of comment and, you know, I'm sure as we carry on this discussion, we'll probably get to that. But that is why I love it so much. And I think, you know, something that I really want to preach to people is to stop seeing horror as this sort of like tacky red and black DVD cover with like a screaming girl on it and see it for what it can be and its potential. And, you know, it's so much part of British heritage as well that I think we should kind of reclaim it a bit more and make it more special and loved in the way that we treat our comedy or our drama with like Shakespeare, you know, that's that's what I believe. So that's that's what I'm about. <laughs> So weird talking about yourself, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> My mum would be like, "She's very good." <laughs> You've got a lot to be like proud of. You should do. You should. Uh, I'm sure that will come in time, though, especially um, with the projects <laughs> you are working on, and you know, the more that will be out. And but I, I mean, I, I've known people that have been like like music's the biggest thing I know, and I know musicians that have done such amazing things, and even they still get so uncomfortable talking about their own achievements. And <laughs> some of us will just never get used to it. No. <laughs> Right, so let's get on to the the main topic of this podcast then. So we're going to be chatting with Promising Young Woman. I wrote a little, or did I write it? No, I didn't write it. I'm not going to claim that I wrote it. I stole a description from Wikipedia. So Promising Young Woman is about a young woman traumatised by a tragic event in her past who seeks out revenge against those who crossed her path. And the film stars Carrie Mulligan as Cassie, and it's written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who I believe is best known for her role as Camilla in The Crown. And a cheeky little nod that she was the showrunner on Killing Eve. Um, Oh, yeah, I heard about that as well. Yeah. Which is why I think we see, I mean, whether you've seen Promising Young Woman or are yet to see it, um, you will notice there is a very stylistic sleekness that I think we see paralleled in Killing Eve. I think it's really interesting that you do see people's touch, in, you know, even in subtle ways. And I think, you know, Emerald Fennell really brought that to Promising Young Woman. So I've also never seen Killing Eve. <laughs> You've never seen Killing Eve? Oh, no, because another show for another time, girl. Don't. I, oh. I watch on. I pretty much watch it on Gogglebox. <laughs> it's on there every <laughs> week. Like every potential like spoiler has been shown on Gogglebox. Oh, there's no. not much point watching it now. Yeah, well, if you can know about it enough to talk about it when someone brings it out, then you're done. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so the film is received mostly positive reviews online. Uh, it's earned four Golden Globe nominations and it is being tipped for the Oscars 2021. I'm not quite sure when those get announced. No, it might neither. have been announced by the time it's released, but <laughs> when we're recording it, it's not. So yeah, hopefully, I'm, I'm hoping it gets uh, nominated. I'm sure it will. And yeah, so if you've not seen the film, I would suggest turning off the podcast and coming back to it because we are going to go through the entire plot in detail. So spoilers, let's, let's get to it. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. 
the film opens. We're in a dance club. A dance club? God, how old do I sound there? In a, in a, in a nightclub, people are dancing. And one thing, even in just this opening shot, how drunk do the dudes look in this? They are very, like, wavy plastered. Yeah. I think what's interesting about that opening, and it was actually something I had to explain to, because I watched it with two boys, which made the viewing experience really intriguing as a woman. Um, Because I think if I'd watched it with my girlfriends, it would have felt very sort of like, we all hold hands and emotionally endure this. Whereas with boys, I think it was really interesting to have their physical reactions to it. Because there was a lot of this film, and particularly the opening, where there was a bit of a sort of cringe to it. And I had to explain to them, I was like, boys are like this in clubs. It's thrusty. It's almost camp in the way some men can be because it's almost like they're trying to be so erotic and sexual that it kind of comes across as the sort of like the 80s dance hall, George Michael physicality. And I think the um, Promising Young Woman really captured that sort of strangeness of like the lights are down, the music's on, and people just want to be that sort of like... Um, sexual provocateur or, or think they are and I think just the like um the opening shot was just like crotches bouncing back, male crotches bouncing back and forth and I think I mean for me that was like Vietnam flashbacks like I could see the choppers coming in I was like oh god I know that thing but it was interesting to watch it with boys and be like boys aren't like that and it's like more than you think and I think it plays very well into the hands of and perhaps a little bit <laughs> unfairly to men in some respects into that idea of kind of like what women have to deal with. And, you know, when we talk about sort of club culture and what women have to put up with, you know, it's a very tongue-in-cheek side-eye analogy of like, you know, it's not necessarily even the sort of all right darlings, it's the sort of strange physicality that men embody. So it's it's a great opener. And also the music choice with Charlie XCX, oh. that real campy bampy. <laughs> the soundtrack was fantastic as well. I mean, that's something we'll probably carry on talking about, but you know, they really built a world in the soundtrack. Listening to it separately from the film in itself really evokes the colour and the, the taste of what the film's about. It's great. Yeah, the, that even just the opening shot, I remember as soon as the Charlie XX song came in, yeah. And like, you know, the, all the, the colours, I was like, I know, I already knew, I think I decided like, this is a good film. Like, yeah, yeah, straight yeah, like, away, I'm like, I've got the vibe. <laughs> this but going to nightclubs, I used to work in nightclubs. I used to DJ oh, really? at the O2 in Bristol. And <laughs> I've seen so many just uncomfortable things of like guys approaching girls, not even like, the amount of times I've, because I was in the, um, I don't know if you've been to the Academy in Bristol, I was in the upstairs room. You've probably and, not realised you've seen me pull a room. <laughs> probably been like, what is that car crash in the corner? <laughs> so, yeah, so I used to work in like the rock room upstairs and it, it was quite, it was the smaller room. So you you could engage with the audience a bit better. So if I ever saw girls uncomfortable, I'd be like, I've, I've generally had it before about to say like, do you want to come up and like stand in the corner on stage? Just oh, like get away from yeah. this guy for a minute. Yeah. And oh yeah, I've, I've seen some, seen some things. <laughs> I know they're like, <laughs> Uh, I know I'm not I'm not the victim at all, but just to to really see it and understand it, it's like ugh. honestly, I think, and this is like something I really want to make a point of, like as we have this conversation, is like a lot of men who I've spoken to about this film have gone like, oh, I know, I can't comment on this stuff, and I actually I welcome, I think this film, and I think its heart is actually to comment on people who are doing these things and make you think about them. And so if a man responds to it and feels something for it, I'm down because if it's provoking feeling in you then you, you know, like, if you are saying to me now, like, what I've seen made me act, if people see this film and go, well, I'm going to act next time I see that, yes, like, yeah. I want to hear it from you. I don't, you know, it's not it's not just for me to comment on you. You know, you are out there protecting. If you are seeing what you're seeing and responding to it, then you deserve to comment too. Yeah. Woo. 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, so yeah, the opening shot, like I just said, we see loads of like kind of guys thrusting about, and like I said, I, I noticed the second time I watched it just how drunk those guys looked. Yeah. And obviously, the first scene is uh, we see Cassie. Uh, we, well, obviously we don't know who she is yet, but we see the girl looking very drunk in the corner, and it's the guys around the bar chatting about it. And immediately, like, look how drunk she is. I, I've, I've quoted, wrote down some of the quotes to say. So they say they put themselves in danger being like that. If she's not careful, someone will take advantage, and she's just asking for it. So we're seeing this negative language in a way that people talk about girls being drunk as if they have no right to be drunk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The only thing that the girls are in danger of is the actions of the men. So why is the blame? Why is the blame not aimed at the men? Why is it mm. she's drunk? You know, and obviously that's the huge message throughout the entire film. And so, yes, yeah, so we're led to believe that the character Jerry is going over to help her. He offers to help her to get her home. But on the way home, he suggests they go back to his place instead of getting her home, despite clearly how drunk she is. And she neither accepts this offer mm. or rejects it. She kind of stays silent. And he already mm. then says to the taxi driver, like, oh, no, Lee, let's change location. We're going to my place. So we're back at his apartment. And he pours them a couple of drinks. This is something I, something I really didn't notice the first time. I was like, "What is he doing?" I know. He pours I know. like a huge drink for her, and then a little bit for himself. And he's got this kind of like awkward goofiness about him, where he kind of like jumps and sits down on the sofa, like, "Hey, how's it going?" And I'm like, I'm like it's frustrating. So yeah, he pours her a very large drink, and he starts edging closer and closer to her, starts complimenting her, and then kisses her, and it's the most uncomfortable looking kiss because obviously she doesn't kiss back he is literally just yeah. all over her face it's gross and then she says she needs to lie down so this is when he starts like kissing her body and tries to take off her clothes very uncomfortable scene and she very clearly says like what are you doing and he ignores her mm-hmm. and then she says a couple more times and then this is when her moment comes she sits up and she stares him like straight in the face and she's like hey what are you doing? And his face looks frightened. And then we kind of cut to the credits. I really like that it cuts to the credits of this. And like, you don't see how she handles it. Mm. Because I think leaving so much more to the imagination makes great films sometimes. You don't always need to know everything. And then perfectly in, in the next scene where it's at the title credits and the music's kicking in, again, back to the soundtrack. Absolutely incredible. Yeah, I was and she's, it, the camera pans up and it looks like she's bloody. So it kind of goes back to what you said about the horror. So like, you're like, holy shit, did she, did she kill him? Did she stab? What, what's she doing? <laughs> and then you see her eating the donut and it's like, ah, okay. But ah, I loved that. It was like the perfect blend of like kind of thriller, suspense, comedy in like a 10 second sh- like panning shot. I loved it. And just what's incredible about that opening as well, to like reflect on everything you've just said and point, put out some points like... What's really interesting about this whole film is I think when we depict um, seedy guys in films, they're always like the chucks or they're, or they're on the opposite se- like end of the spectrum. They're sort of like slimy and like, so it's kind of like two extremes. You've either got like never been with a woman and predatorial or peer pressure. And especially in horror, you sort of get the like, come on, Casey, come back to my place. It's all going to be fine. <laughs> And I think to kind of hit this um, <clears throat> middle ground, and he's played by, is it, Ad- is it Adam Brody? Yeah. It is, isn't it? From, yeah. Who is, I mean, a pinup from like my childhood. Like I remember he was in the OC, I want to say. I might be wrong. Sorry if I am. Um, and he's very like, he's a very good looking guy. And I think he's been idolized in like his teenhood for being sort of beautiful. And then to put him in a film like this where he's 
actually being depicted as being nice but then when you when he gets back it's the clever slight like he doesn't take her back he's like oh i'm gonna do this to you like the lad character would or he's not like sniffing her like the creepy character would he just makes the drinks different measurements which is just enough for you to be like he's getting her more drunk but getting him functioning is very clever because i think it plays against our expectation we we, we want to trust him and i think a lot of the film feeds into this idea of like nice guys and you know nice guys don't do that and then to have her almost be the sort of not not the monster but to be the terrifying person by revealing herself and being like what are you doing it's that incredible power play that just like shoots across the bed it literally starts at the end of the bed and ends at the end of the bed where she is and it's just like a lot of the film is just it constantly flicks expectation and i think that's where the power of the horror comes because we think we know one horror and then it's actually the other thing it's the opposite yeah, I mean, I completely thought she murdered him. I completely, I was just like, this is going to be a slasher. But that's where I liked predictability went. I've seen enough revenge films. I know that, I know the format. Yeah. She's gone yeah. in, she's slaughtered him. She goes back to her little book and, you know, makes the strike. It's all there. And then it's, you know, it's not. It's a sort of moral lesson. And it's just, it's such a great opening. And also, let's not forget the bit where she, um, in the same opening that Ryan's talking about, She's walking down the street. We have an expectation that she's committed a murder and she passes a builder site and all the builders wolf whistle her and catcall her. And instead of shrugging or rolling her eyes, she just confronts them. And it's an interest, again, an interesting power play. It's the idea of being the wall that the noise bounces off and just, just that being enough to be, it's also frightening because I think we don't see enough women in the cinema being powerful without being, an extreme again so we've got like your wonder womans or your Heidi quins or whatever and they're very cliche powerful women but to see one just kind of let it hit her and throw it back it's terrifying and it's exciting i mean it's a fucking great but it's yeah. terrifying because it's not what we've seen before and i think that was one of the first times i noticed the two men i was sat with watching the film squirm because it was kind of like she's not letting them get away with that is she and it's like no She's not. I and love it's that scene. I know. It's, I, I this whole heard... film just going to be asking me, like, I love it. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I've listened to some, like, feminist podcasts, and one of the things that I picked up on is, like, when someone makes, like, a sexist joke, ask them to explain it. Be like, yeah. don't kind of, like, go back and, like, that's not funny, because then they think they've won, because they're like, oh, I've offended them. Yeah. Be like, what, what's funny about that? What, what, explain the joke, because then they can't. And that's kind of like this moment where they start hitting on her. She just stops and then kind of stares at them. And then they're like, fuck you, can't you take a joke? And it's, it's like, what is the joke? Yeah. <laughs> like she, she's essentially, she's just waiting for them to say, you know, what, what are we going to say? They've got fuck all yeah. to say. Accountability is a huge thing. Like, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not here to be like, and my personal experience, but I had a situation once where two blokes catcalled me and followed me. The minute you pick up your phone and film them, silence. Yep. So they don't want it. And you think, and I think that's what this film was saying is they don't want it the minute you hold them accountable to it. And and like, you know, sadly, it won't stop them doing it to the next woman, but for yourself, the, you know, just... And Cassie kind of embodies that very modern way of thinking about the woman where it's kind of like confrontation can be good and confrontation can be good for the cause and she's just like that scene is just so i mean even i felt a bit like oh god like that's you know that's embarrassing for them despite their behavior being shitty yeah (laughs) i I was i was just like in the moment with the music i was like cheering her on i was like fucking yes (laughs) yeah so then she gets home and you mentioned the notepad she adds jerry's name to the notepad what do you think is the significance of the different colored inks because if you notice some of them are black some are blue and a couple of them are red oh my god I i didn't know that was a stylistic thing (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's open to interpretation to kind of think like, 
if it was red, if they did something bad. I don't know, because they don't go into that. But um, I, I, I thought that was really interesting. I kind of kind of wanted to know more. But then in the same way, I'm glad we don't, because like I said, open to, leaves it to our imagination. And the depth of that film, I think you wouldn't be wrong in assuming there's some sort of like decision in that, which perhaps when the film gets its international release, we'll probably see more information about. But yeah, I mean, there's that's a really fascinating point. And I suppose in context of the what later happens in the film, perhaps the impact of the behaviour or how how far she got with the man before. Yeah, completely could be to do with... I really hadn't even... You learn something new every day. <laughs> yeah, I think I tried to work it out in thinking like, even if it was like days of the week, so like weekdays and weekends, but I was like, no, yeah. they, they weren't evenly spaced out. So no. there's got to be something to it. But um guess we'll never know unless, uh, I don't know, unless we hear like kind of a behind the writers yeah, yeah. type podcast. Yeah, so then we're at the dinner table scene and she's eating with her parents, her mother played by Jennifer Coolidge. Ooh. And she lies about where she was the night before, saying she had to work late at the coffee shop. And then we cut to the coffee shop. How wonderful and colourful are these coffee shop scenes? I know. <laughs> Visually, this film is just stunning. Every time you're in the coffee shop, I was like, even when films are like shit, if they're like visually pleasing on the eye, you'll still want to watch it. So like, when it's a good film anyway, it's such a yeah. huge thing to be like, oh, just the colour schemes were amazing. It's like a proper feast of a film. And also, I just want to make like a little nod to Jennifer Coolidge in this film because... I feel that she's the kind of actress that, like, do you remember when John C. Riley did We Need to Talk About Kevin and everyone was like, what the fuck, he can act? Is this going to be the renaissance of Coolidge? Are we going to see her doing serious? Are we going to get an Oscar nom in a few years' time? Because I need that. <laughs> I love her. That would be great to see. I just thought as well, like, she's got that wonderful, like, I don't mean to be unkind to her, but because she's such a caricature in a face. I think when emotions resonate in her face, whereas people, a lot of people go for subtlety and it's all, like, passing through the eyes she kind of does go like, and it, it's very, it's almost like the Florence Pugh bottom lip. It's that sort of like, you really get it straight there. And I just thought in this film, like for a choice that at first made me laugh, I was like, it's stiff for his mum. It was like, fuck, actually she's, because she's sort of so vulnerable looking and because she's got this incredibly expressive face compared to Cassie's almost deadpan, oh, I don't, you know, I was just working late. To have this really emotive woman who was really leaning into the mother role and showing us that side of womanhood. I was like, I'm there. Coolidge, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, so we're in the, in the coffee shop and Cassie is talking with her boss who mentions a friend of hers says that he saw her alone and drinking in a club recently and Cassie denies this, saying, as the viewer, we're, we're already learning that it's a regular thing that she's doing in this, this, this club night scene that she does. But she's, she's secretive about it. She's already lied to her parents and she's lied to her colleague slash close friend. So this is when I made the note of a soundtrack shout out. So this song was Donna Missile, Nothing's Gonna Hurt You Baby. I really liked it. I don't know if you know the artist Lord, but it reminded me of her. Hello, Lord. Yeah. Hello, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought it was sick. I, I listened to um, a, a podcast recently, actually, talking about horror. And they, they were saying how movies these days, they don't have like a theme anymore. You know how you've got like, you know, like the Rocky theme and like even like Titanic theme and Halloween. Mm-hmm. There's no like... I mean, you do get movie scores, of course you do, but like, there's nothing as memorable as what you used to get, like, you know, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are certain films, and this one, I would place it in my list of films with just like incredible soundtracks that just really oh bring God, the film completely. out. But like, I feel like for this film, like, what's clever is they actually take songs and then, like, I can't listen to Toxic by Britney now 
without thinking of this film because they've so cleverly orchestrated it through the marketing that it almost becomes its theme, it almost becomes its score. And I think perhaps we don't have themes like we used to, but there is something clever now where we're twisting moods through songs and by association creating scores. Oh, 100%. Think of um, Us, I Got Five on it with the uh, creepy... Jordan Peele. (laughs) We bow at your altar, Jordan Peele. What a man. Right, so we're in the coffee shop. We get like a panning shot up Cassie's back and over her head as she's reading a book. And then in comes new character, Ryan, played by Bo Burnham. Hey. They connect over the fact that they used to go to like college or med school together. Mm. I mean, anyone that's listening to this podcast knows what happens to his character. But I'm just saying at this point in the film, I loved Bo Burnham. <laughs> Until that switch moment, he was fantastic. I mean, he's <laughs> as an actor, he's still fantastic anyway, but his character was so nice and then well what I love about it as well is like my little journey with that whole thing because I know him from Vine when he used to do like all his like what's better than a really like yeah I'm that guy and then I saw him in this and what's incredible about the casting of him is he is to a T a nice guy he is like build a nice guy that's him and his manner his enthusiasm his absolute worship of Cassie is such a box ticker for women like when we watch films and romantic comedies that kind of atypical like oh this woman she's so amazing she's like my life and we all go like oh that's so good and it's like the bare minimum (laughs) but in films we really praise it and so it was such clever casting to not only have this guy who looks so sort of like he's such a classic American handsome, but then also kind of we know him outside of the film. Anyone who, you know, follows any of his work knows he's a good guy in real life. It was kind of like this really clever little bit of underhand from the casting director being like, we've already got the audiences on site. The audience already loves him. We already know he's good. So like you said, it's a real right, when things change, it's a right hook. And it's really good. (laughs) It's a really clever little right hook. So in their first meet, uh, he says like, what are you doing here? Like almost without thinking. And what I liked about this, it's such a simple mistake to make, isn't it? Like anytime you bump into somebody, even if you're in their place of work or like you're out shopping, like, oh, what are you doing? Like, obviously, yeah. like I'm working on shopping. And he owns up to that mistake because it, it comes across quite rude. You know, they've come from med school and he's like, what are you doing working in a coffee shop? But then he's immediately like takes it back. And I like that. Small mistakes can happen. You know, he plays it off quite well. He's like, oh, you can spit in my coffee if you like. And then she does, which is, and then he sips it, <laughs> which is brilliant. Yeah. And he asks if he can take her out on a date. I think that's at the moment he like takes a sip of coffee to kind of show like this kind of awkward exchange hasn't put him off his feelings towards her. I can't remember. I don't think you see her kind of accept the date or she doesn't really want to go on it immediately anyway. Mm-hmm. And then we jump to another scene. And this is the one with Christopher Mintz-Plaz, the guy that plays McLovin in Super, Super Bad. He's never going to lose that name, is he, McLovin? But- oh, <laughs> and he's never going to lose those roles either. Like, God love him. Like, when I saw him in this film, I was like, I just know what this scene is going to be like. And lo and behold, it was exactly as I thought it would be. <laughs> so this guy, I didn't get his name, but he's doing coke. And she's kind of sat on the bed looking very drunk. She's like smudged her makeup to make her look even more drunk. And she's obviously acting quite drunk. And he says like, oh, do you do cocaine? And she's like, no. And then he like tries to like force it on her, which is like mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. wrong. Like some of do drugs, like don't, you know. But anyway, she goes to like pretend to want to do it. She's like kind of flopping her head all over the place. And then she accidentally like, blows it away. And this is when he says to her, like, oh, what? He thinks he's being a nice guy, isn't he, by saying this next part? When he's like, oh, I never yeah. understand why women so much, wear so much makeup. You're so beautiful without it. Thinking, like, that's a compliment. But, dude, shut the fuck up. <laughs> 
Well, it's, again, it's an interesting lean into that, like, generic good guy kind of, like, I feel before now I've sat and listened to guys in pubs or at bars when they're very drunk and they've been like, I'm really progressive. Like, I just don't understand. I just so like, I just think women should be naturally beautiful and all that. And you're just, it's a weird one because I think men believe this is like, they're like doing the God's work by saying that to us. And it's, it's, again, it's just like, it's just such a great, form of writing of kind of making critiques of what men think make them good guys and then putting them in context of men who use those phrases against women to kind of manipulate them like he's using those phrases not because he necessarily sincerely believes that he's probably just using it to get Cassie into bed but they sit under the heading of things nice guys would say and so it's really like it's a really clever little juxtaposition again throwing expectation of like he's not gonna hurt her he's saying nice things but he's also just shoved cocaine in her mouth he's also you know putting her in a very compromising position and I just I think he's you know like we said like he's unfortunately gonna be that role forever but then he's also kind of perfect casting because he he looks quite vulnerable doesn't he? he's quite a strange little chap like a, you know good actor great guy can't knock him but he's very little and kind of he's always got a hunch so yeah he kind he's of not, like, he's he not threatening no, yeah, I wouldn't think he was. And that's what's clever. That's what's clever about the whole scene is you think Cassie could probably smash him up if she wanted to. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so she claims to feel sick and lies down. And his reaction is, of course, negative because he's an asshole. <laughs> he, like, rolls his eyes and says under his breath, like, are you fucking kidding me? If he was a real nice person, like he later claims to be, you, you wouldn't act that way to, like, a mm-hmm. girl claiming to feel ill, you know, or sick. Mm. It shouldn't be a problem for you. You should want to mm. you know comfort them and after sitting her up and getting her some water she asks him to call her a cab but he declines and then that's when he like forces himself upon her same thing like at the beginning she speaks up and he realizes what's going on and she tells him she's not drunk but that's good isn't it she says like i'm not too drunk to do it but he like freaks out wants her to leave he like immediately just gets super defensive claims to be a nice guy and we see her reveal to him what she does, going to clubs, pretending to be drunk so that guys like him will pick her up and try and take advantage. As she walks out on him, she says, like, be careful next time you go out. And that little line there, I think was great because this could happen. I don't know. I hope guys do watch this film and really do take this as, as a warning. And Yeah, it's a funny, again, it's a funny play on the idea of like, we say to girls, like, careful next time you go out. Oh, there was a girl who went out the other night, she got attacked. So next time you go out, be careful. And then you've got the girl reclaiming that phrase reclaiming that and being like you be careful your behavior is consequential so you watch out and it's yeah like it's a really fuck like a lot of the script is really cleverly altering words that are used against women and putting them on men and putting them onto men oh it's just i I just want to be like oh it's just such a good film but it's just so good So Cassie adds his name to the list and we see her look at the photo on her desk of her and as we soon find out, it's her and her friend Nina. So this is when, uh, again, as a viewer, we start to kind of get a bit of the motive of plot for the rest of the film. So the next morning, it's Cassie's birthday and her parents have a gift for her at breakfast. Cassie forgot that it's her birthday, which upsets her mother. Her mother claims the situation to be strange. I thought that this was going to go more into the the view in society of how like you know women should be wanting to get married and have kids and yeah, you know, all I of agree. this stuff. Yeah. It, it never quite goes into that, but again, I suppose even just having that in that scene with her mother thinking this her situation is strange. I'm like, mm-hmm. why not? She's got a job. She's 
you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, it didn't go further into that. But the first time I watched it, I really thought that's where it was going to go. Back in the coffee shop and she's telling her boss or her friend, but she brings up that. She says like, I don't want the house and the kids and the yoga class lifestyle. So that, that's why I thought it was going to go more into it. But I mean, I think it does the job there just by saying that. And then Ryan comes back, our boy Bo Burnham. <laughs> I love this scene. So the number that Cassie gave him was a fake number. And we get that hilarious kind of part where he says that he wrote a really romantic text and sent it out, but it actually went to an oil worker named Red. And like, he's like, yeah, it's not going to work out, you know, because of the oil rig. <laughs> I'd love to know if Bo Burnham was allowed to improvise his lines because the comedy is so Bo Burnham. Yes. Yeah, completely agree. I completely agree. I wonder if there was a little bit of like artistic license there where like, you know, if you feel you've got something you want to finesse on, go for it. But you get, he's so fucking good in this film. Like he really, I think what's, what he poses in this film is a great counterbalance to the seriousness. And though he becomes part of the seriousness, he's that light refreshment before it gets dark. He's probably the sort of like calm before the storm. And I think that's why this film works in a lot of ways is because I think sometimes when we're trying to do serious topics like this, we're trying to, you know, we can hammer it into the audience that you almost disengage by the first half an hour. Like I'm so down, I'm an hour about it. I'm so miserable that you, it's not you don't care, but you become, you almost like you get your protective filter up and you go like, okay, I know what's happening. I'm just going to sit here. And I think Bo Burnham just is that really wonderful remedy to that. And he, he kind of brings you back in and makes you think like, okay, like this is going to have some fun. This is going to have some light. And you think until the end, he will probably be the light relief. And that's, yeah. you know, it's a really clever little trick for the audience. Yeah. Cause there is, there are some fun scenes to come with Bo Burnham. Yeah. It, it, I, I totally agree with you. It kind of, it, it brings you back just to the fact that you are still watching an entertaining film. You know, it's not, it's a very difficult and dark subject within the film overall, but it is still a film, you know, like <laughs> I'm sure it's, but it does, you know, there's comedy to it as well. And so this time she accepts this date and her parents seem very happy about the fact she's going on a date. Again, going back to what they want from her. One thing I noticed about this, so I, I mentioned earlier that I had an alcohol-free beer. I, I don't drink anymore. And I really liked that they weren't drinking on the date because mm. this, this is just a personal thing for me, but I, I think first dates are so much better if you do it sober and you can really get to know people. And I, I just like that, that in, in a film it's represented, they're just out having, like, I think they're on a coffee or something. And yeah, I just really liked that. I thought that kind of added to the sweetness of their first date. Yeah, it's a, it's a great, also I think it's an interesting, for that reason alone it's great because I think also like, I completely agree with you, it shows a really healthy approach to dating. But also I think it's a great idea to juxtapose it with then that almost alcohol is damaging because Cassie uses it as a weapon she uses drinking as a weapon against men. So to not drink with him shows a trust. It's like a very subtle thing, I feel, but I feel it shows that she she can be her with him. There is no drinking. There is no facade that she puts on with other men to get to them. She kind of knows he's a good guy, so she's going to forgo that sort of life and forgo that image to be comfortable. And it's quite a clever little, I felt, I mean, I don't know, Emerald might not say that was the idea, but I felt that that was a clever little, like, alcohols associated with darkness and what's to come. And so she won't drink with people she loves or she thinks are good people. Yeah, that's interesting. I, di- I didn't even think of that, that by allowing herself to be with him sober as well, it's more putting more trust in him, I suppose. Yeah. So they're, they're walking home and they walk past Ryan's apartment and he invites her upstairs. And the date kind of ends quite abruptly there because you could tell something switched for her because it's then going back to the situation she gets in the clubs where people are like, oh, let's go back to my place and things like that. Whereas he might have been, you know, just enjoying himself on the date. And so yeah, she kind of walks off in a piss and you can see... She's angry at herself for that when she like kicks the bin and she's like, fuck, whatever. And I, I um, again, I, I thought this was going to go into like, she's unable to accept Ryan's invitation inside as it shows like the disrespect that she's often had from men. 
So it's even impacting her decisions with men that she likes. Mm. So it's showing that like the way the men in the clubs treat her has got so much more impact than even just that one night, which of course comes up many times throughout the film. But even just in that sense that it completely knocks her trust, even when she Mm. wants to have the trust, you know? Mm. And then, yeah, so Cassie then visits Ryan again the next day kind of to apologise and say she really wants to see him again, but they need to take things slow. Ryan's happy about this and they agreed to go slow. So again, we've got Ryan looking like a very nice guy. It's looking like the start of a great relationship. The next scene, they're on a date and the conversation goes to their med school days. Ryan reveals that he still sees some of the people they went to school with. Cassie claims to not remember the girl Madison when Ryan brings her up. Although Ryan seems to remember them being friends along with that other girl, he says. Mm. Clearly, we know this other girl that he's referring to is Nina. But at this point in the film, we're yet to know what's happened. But we can speculate it's Nina from the photo on the desk. Mm-hmm. And then Ryan mentions another name, Al Monroe. And this is where the music kind of shifts the tone. Like where Cassie's whole body language changes from the date. You can tell she was a lot more comfortable now. It's like just that name alone is such a trigger. The music in the film takes the viewers to a darker place. And Ryan mentions that they aren't close, but he still sees them at work. Mm. And it's an interesting shift of what you're saying about Cassie as well, because I would thought in direction and writing, it would have probably been the catalyst for like the beginning of the, like when we sort of talk about characters, we sort of talk about that arc. And I feel like it's when the arcs just started to lip upward, because I felt that from that moment onward, Carrie Mulligan proper changed. And it was never big. It was never like she went all like angry or anything like that. But it was almost like she'd not she'd forgotten the name, but the name hadn't been said. And so like the sort of scab was healing and the wound was kind of doing what it could. And like she was just doing her little things. Well, it wasn't little things, but the things she was doing to the men was her way of retaliating. And then it was almost like Boba like picked the skin off and it was like the scab is open, it's bleeding again. And I felt from that scene on, there was almost like a glimmer in her eyes of like, it's not now just about teaching men a lesson. It's about teaching him a lesson. And how she could do that. And it was just such a little thing that I felt that from that moment on, the film changed tone in a really subtle, quiet building way. Yeah, because rather than rather than like targeting all men, she's literally gone for like the root of her, you know, her reason for yeah. what she does. Yeah. And then next scene, Cass is in her bedroom looking at the photos of her and Nina from their childhood. And she searches online for Al Monroe and then she comes across Madison McPhee. And this is when we get like the, the title cards throughout the film now. So through each kind of or it's like chapter of person she targets. We get the, the, the Roman numerals. So we've got number one. And then we've got Cassie waiting to meet Madison at lunch. Madison arrives, plays by Alison Brie. Woo! Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we love Alison Brie in the house. <laughs> Madison gets drunk on wine over lunch. Cassie leads to her to believe that she's also drinking, but we see her pour like a non-alcoholic drink into a glass. So she's kind of waiting for Madison to get tipsy and, you know, in, in a more vulnerable position. And Cassie brings up something that happened whilst they were in school. And Madison pretends to be unaware of what she's talking about. She says like, oh, it, it was years ago, like trying to brush it off. Like she knows what she's trying to trying to bring up. So they're, of course, talking about the situation with Nina. We don't fully know at this point what's happened. No. We, we're gauging that, you know, Cassie's got a friend. A sexual assault took place and people weren't listening. Because Madison's response is then, she does like what the, the male view does when they get all defensive. They're like, oh, well, if you've got a reputation for sleeping around, then maybe, you know, people aren't going to believe you when you say something's happened. Saying like, oh, she's crying wolf and then this line don't get blackout drunk all the time and expect people to be on your side when you have sex with somebody that you don't want to it's a lot of interesting internalized misogyny as well like i think what's interesting women discussing um sexual assault and things is you you imagine every woman's progressive you imagine every woman is 
understanding and sympathetic, but you would be surprised how many times in a woman's life you'll hear, oh, I thought he was a good guy, or he's like, he's never upset me, or, oh, that was a rumor, or he's a good guy now. And I think Alison Brie's character in this really embodies that strange relationship some women have with men, where they sort of feel like if they defend them, they're kind of valid to men and like to men. And it's it's quite a hard thing to learn to pull yourself away from and be happy to be a woman and kind of believe other women. And I just thought, I mean, Alison Brie's a fantastic actress anyway, but I think she really embodied that kind of conflicted woman who probably knows the truth, but doesn't want to lose face and believes that it's worth more to be liked and favoured than to know the truth. And I think she just had these wonderful little moments. And I mean, I'd invite anyone who hasn't seen the film and is still listening to pay attention to Alison Brie's eyes in this because it's constantly not meeting Cassie's gaze. And it's that kind of like any spot that means I don't have to confront the truth head on. And it was really fucking powerful as a scene in this sort of very subtle, again, subtle way. Like, it was great. Yeah, so yeah, they're they're kind of drinking over lunch or Madison's drinking, Cassie isn't. And Cassie leaves Madison alone at the table, drunk, and she kind of tips off a guy as she's walking out of the restaurant, Mm. which, again, starts to leave more to the imagination for the, for the mm. time being we do obviously find out later on what's gone on but you kind of think like I, I, I don't know if it's because I'm more of a horror fan than any other genre that I'm just immediately thinking like fucking hell like what are they going to do like <laughs> We were waiting for the blade to come out, weren't yeah. we? Were <laughs> so yeah, at this point, we don't know what Cassie's planning. You know, is she letting someone go through, putting her through the same experience her friend went through? In my moment, quite dark places at this point. No, I think it was the only bit of the film, and genuinely, I, I like, I love this film. I love it. But it was the only bit of the film that I questioned in writing because I wanted to, and like, you know, we know what we know, so it's all okay. But I think for the first time viewer makes you go, but Cassie, surely you don't want to be doing that. And I think it's something that we see a lot in typical revenge films is an eye for an eye. And I never feel redeemed. I never, anytime I've watched a revenge film where it's like, you did this to me, so I'm going to do this to you. I've never felt like, well, that's good. And, you know, it's always been a little bit like, well, surely you are no better. And I think this was the first bit of Promising Young Woman where I felt a bit like Cassie no, we're better than that. And it's a really interesting little moral conundrum, despite its payoff. You know, it's a very, like you said, as typical horror fans, I think we were both going, fucking hell, Emerald. (laughs) This isn't going to do anyone any good. So it was really quite a... It's a clever little moment there. I agree with you there because I think I think I felt a bit of like disappointment in the character at this point. Like, yeah, went with what I was thinking could be happening. I was like, oh, like really? Yeah. We're kind of left to wonder what's going on. And the next day, Cassie has voicemail messages from Madison asking her if Cassie saw her talking to a guy. She's like freaking out. She's like saying, oh, I woke up in a hotel room. Don't know what happened. And kind of left with wondering what's going on. And then we're in the next scene. Cassie pulls up near high school and asks a student for directions. She leads the student to believe that she's working with a pop band called Wet Dreams. Worst band name ever. (laughs) It reminds me of Cartman's band on South Park when they could finger bang. (laughs) Finger bang. Bang bang. funny that like and I, I don't mean this is any criticism to the writing but I do love when she's not even an older generation I think Emerald's only like mid-30s but I love when people try and encapsulate younger generations and they always give them like the most ludicrous names as if like people would actually let that pass it's like oh yeah we'll call it wet dreams that sounds like a young hip thing and it's like any if we had wet dreams on TikTok now people would be like what the fuck is that like it's just funny I, I think it's just a joke on like yeah oh yeah of course it is. again like South Park when they did the Jonas Brothers and they were like really like sexual <laughs> 
and stuff like that. I think it's like a joke about that. All their oh, songs God, are just to make good. girls. There's, I, I was thinking this the other day, like how many like songs are in the charts and people don't know what it's about. Oh, 1975, okay. Chocolate, is about heroin. And it was like the oh, most okay. played song. <laughs> what was it? There, was, there was a song, it was a tweet I saw, it was like when The Weeknd did the Super Bowl the other day. And they were like, it's mad that The Weeknd won a Nickelodeon Teen Choice Award for a song about doing so much cocaine that you can't feel your own face. Oh my God, yes, of course. And also, I gotta say, I still find it astonishing that, like, I love the song, but like, I was, I was like working the other day, and thirty four, thirty five by Ariana Grande came on, and someone who was like a, quite a bit older was like, "This is a, this is a fun little tune, isn't it?" And you were, I was just there, like, "Yeah, it's definitely fun." Like, like, just like sat in their little chair, just like, "Yeah, I like this, I like this," and I was like, contextually. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, I think I think that's what they're going for, like the wet dreams. I, th- I think it's made for us to kind of notice to be like, uh, I see yeah, what they're yeah. doing there. Um, but yeah, this girl's a huge fan of the band, and Cassie like leads her to believe that she's working with them, and she needs like directions. So the girl gets in the car to help her out. Cassie locks the doors and drives off. Ooh, I love that bit. <laughs> Again, another moment of like, where yeah. is this going? <laughs> and then we get the next title cards, Roman numerals two. I really liked these title cards, like. It was almost like, I, I mentioned that I was watching Paranormal Activity. I remember seeing that the first time. Every time it was the night shot, you're like, something's coming now. And it was the same with that, like, title cards. You're like, yes, next yeah. bit, what's coming? And then, so this is the bit from the first trailer that I saw of the film. So Cassie goes into a meeting with the Dean, Dean Walker, leading her to believe that she wants to rejoin med school, that she dropped out mm-hmm. years ago. At least, yeah, at least that's what the Dean's led to think. Cassie says that she left because of what happened to Nina, asking the Dean if she remembers her. When the Dean says no, she asks if she remembers Al Monroe. And the Dean's like, yep, super smart, lovely guy. Cassie brings up the ac- accusations made against Al Monroe. And this this was the bit from the trailer. I love this bit. When the teacher's like, was this incident reported? She was like, yep. Do you know who it was reported to? You. And there's that painful, silent moment when, again, you're just like right in Cassie's corner, like, yes, you fucking got her. Oh. And then, yeah, the Dean kind of talks about what happened as though putting the blame on the woman, like it's a mistake on her part. We all do things that are regrettable. It's like, oh, shouldn't do it. But again, it's a really interesting thing to have a woman do it because I think we do, again, like this film just averts so many cliches because, you know, we do, we are so like hashtag me to hashtag like female empowerment. And, it, you know, so many women don't want to get involved. And like, it's not necessarily to point the finger and criticize, but you know, I think it goes to show how far we've come that we've only recently started to like take responsibility and be like, that wasn't, you know, that was fucked up. That was wrong. It shouldn't have happened. And I think in the past, we really did just sort of go like, head and, you know, like, don't, did that happen? I didn't see it. I was busy that day, you know, and it, it was, it's great to see women being held to consequence as well, because I think if we keep going, it's just men. Then I think the women who behave like that get away with it quite a lot. And it's everyone's got to be held accountable in those circumstances. Everyone's got to be held accountable. So I thought that scene was really, like you said, you really got into Cassie's corner. You really felt like this is important. And yeah. oh, chills! It's such a good film. And it was, it was, it was definitely more impactful being like a female dean, like saying it. If it was a man, you'd kind of it's exactly what you'd expect. So it kind of yeah. it throws you off more that this is like a you know a, a strong female character. You know, she's yeah, she's a dean of like some respectful university. You know, like. She has responsibility. She has responsibility to care for the people under her. Yeah. You know, she had she had responsibility to protect um, Nina. Yeah. She didn't take it. So Cassie reveals that the girl she picked up from school earlier on is the dean's daughter Amber. She tells that she dropped her off in the same room that the incident with Nina took place, and that she is partying and drinking with the guys in that room now. Oh. And. Oh, this is when we get like that. it's like a full-on thriller moment like my heart was like beating once to know what's going on i think i was almost like holding my breath for this scene 
And so the dean's panicking about her daughter's safety. The dean begins to see the errors in a ways, and I think she, like she immediately switches and like knows you know what's going on. And Cassie obviously then reveals you know your daughter's fine. She believes she's waiting for a boy band in a diner. When you said about like the eye for an eye thing, I think that's in the case where this kind of doesn't work because she's not she's not getting her revenge in a way that like it's, it's not accepting what's gone on. But to put someone in that position and to really genuinely like for them to believe everything like I, I don't know but yes it was such a big moment I thought well I think it's like I mean it's something I always have tried to like I take late to people when they talk to talk to me about sexual assault or whatever is it's complicated to be em- empathetic and it's complicated to be empathetic if you don't understand it but it shouldn't take it happening to someone you care about for you to care and I think that scene is exactly that point that scene exactly proves that like the dean when it's her daughter her mind's reeling, she's panicking. We're all sat as an audience feeling sick. Again, thinking, Cassie, what the fuck? Like, we're meant to be rooting for you. And then when, you know, we find out it's okay, you see how much the Dean hurt. And so you sort of feel, and, I, you know, it was quite cathartic. And I just sort of felt like this is an excellent example of, it's like it's like the old expression, you only love them because they're dead. It shouldn't take an extreme and it shouldn't take it happening to only someone you care about for it to matter. It should have just mattered anyway. And I just felt like, yeah, I mean, think about it now. Like, my heart is heavy. Like, I'm like, that was a very extreme point made very, <laughs> very, very well. Um, I think a lot of this film kind of gives heart and wind to that and sort of says, you know, like, this isn't one woman's story and every time we hear this, we should care. Yeah, definitely. Finger snap. <laughs> <laughs> so then we're in the next scene. This is probably the only scene I wasn't too keen on in the film. So this is the the, the highway scene where Cassie's mm. like, she stopped in the middle of the road and then a guy kind of stops and shouts at her like, what are you doing? Like, stopped in the middle of the road. And then she gets out and like smashes his car up. So I was a bit mm. confused about this scene. But then thinking about it, I'm wondering if it didn't happen and it's more of like a visual symbolism, how it feels to be Cassie that she's beginning to make an impact on this journey mm, mm. towards the end goal which is you know the, the guy I know like the the nightclub thing and going after men in general is like the whole the whole image of it overall but you know her story does have a core moment this album yeah. row and obviously you know we've learned by now she's kind of built up to that so yeah because I, I get such road rage when I'm on the road if someone was parked in the middle of the road I, I would be the dude in the other track of like what the <laughs> fuck are you doing get out of the way you felt this scene in your heart <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's why I was a bit confused because I was like, uh, but yeah, I, I'm gonna, I, I'm taking that as more visual symbolism. Yeah, I wanted to know what you thought about this bit. I mean, in reflection, I don't think it was the most smart scene. I think it was probably li- like laboring the point completely. I felt it was like a scene of catharsis, and I also don't know if I, weirdly, contrasting Cassie's character, I actually don't believe she'd have done it. Does that make sense? Like, I yeah. think she's so calculated. There's almost something about her that is so meticulous and even down to the fact that like she waited for that woman's daughter because it was that woman's daughter to make sure that that woman did that thing to kind of so callously destroy something I don't feel we'd got if we saw that scene later in the film I would have probably bought it more because I feel like towards the end of the film she became this sort of like reckless impulsive I've got to do this to get this done whereas at that point I felt we hadn't had that like there's a scene coming up which, you know, we'll get to, where something is revealed to Cassie and you really see that she's got to go and get it. Like, she's really got to resolve this. Like, this thing is handed to her. It's the proof she needs. And I felt like if after that moment we'd seen her smash up someone's car and have gone, oh, okay, yeah, she's so, like, consumed now. Like, this is the button's been pushed. This is the atomic bomb she's going to go off. But I felt it was too early. And therefore, like, I agree with you. It almost felt like a sort of fantasy scene of, like, no, yeah. Maya, leave me alone. And I was kind of like... 
like to, like the it's for a scene that looks impactful when it trailers it didn't hit as well as some of the lesser and quieter scenes which come up and have been already sort of thing so yeah i kind of yeah. in reflection it i mean the fact that you've asked me what i thought of it i kind of can't really think of it because it just didn't matter to me out of all the scenes in the film it was like yeah she smashes someone's car up you know i think i picked up on it because i often see from the male point of view people believe the word feminism to be pro-women but feminism itself is equality the reason it's it's feminism is because women have been so you know left behind in society's use for years that it's almost to catch it up it needs to be Mm. feminism Mm. but there's so many men that'll be like oh you know bloody feminists thinking that that's only women and i don't know for me this scene felt like uh, if there's going to be some guys watching it that like aren't on board with message they're going to use that scene to be like oh well no she was she was in the wrong Mm. i like focus on that one tiny thing almost to kind of get their own redemption on like yeah oh. it's almost like there's sort of like riots at like a protest isn't it it's like everyone's peacefully protesting but there's someone who smashes a window and that makes yeah. the protest valid and i agree it kind of was that moment of like and yeah. like you said we've got you've got this film has to keep people on board it has yeah. to and i think when a character acts out like that like that guy wasn't being a dick technically on on a technicality he was being fairly sensible like he wasn't doing anything completely wrong so for her to act out it just felt a bit like yeah. so far yeah. you back to the people who have wronged you so to hurt a kind of civilian or to kind of piss one off seems a bit yeah it just felt a bit very anti-man in like in that in that like negative view of feminism Mm. way like i think for myself i I didn't quite get these views myself i would again like i said i thought it was more of a visual symbolism but knowing that this film needs to be seen by a wide audience and people need to take it on i just thought that was a bit of a questionable scene i thought i don't know i'd cut take that scene out but yeah. there might be more to it that we're not we're not aware of i don't know i just i just hope people don't cling on to that scene and then like let that one moment paint her as a bad person but yeah so cassie arrives home and realizes she's forgotten about a date she planned with ryan he's there waiting for her but she doesn't want to go out tonight she's had a bad day but then we then jump to cassie's back in the nightclub doing her doing her nightclub routine so she's been picked up by a guy she's walking out of the club but ryan walks past oh yeah bad timing when the guy's trying to like take her home he realizes what's going on and he throws off the the male defense you're not even that hot Oh. <laughs> yeah as if like by being turned down he has to like shut them down even more and that's such a thing isn't it you always see girls like sharing their dms of like a guy that will like try hitting on them and if they're like no they're like well fuck you bitch it's like know, oh, it's so entitled to believe that they owe you something you know oh completely and I, I I thought that was what was quite clever about the scene was there was a bit where he sort of says something like oh if she's your woman or something like that yeah I was like oh I didn't know she was your woman and it's like it's intriguing in a way that there is like a negative in being like oh I wouldn't want you but then there's a possessive in being like well I had her but you can now have her yeah. so it a weird juxtaposition of like possession versus neglect and kind of not wanting it because of your pride. But Ryan picks up on that. Yeah, he does. Yeah, to be fair to me, he does. Yeah. He's a good guy. Uh, yeah, at this point. Because, <laughs> yeah, like when the guy's like, oh, I didn't know she was yours or something like that, like he, I, I, he kind of makes like a face or like he reacts to it so the viewer yeah. knows, like, oh, we're on Ryan's side. And then title cards, uh, we're at the third one now. So Cassie's knocking on the door. The door is answered by a lawyer named Jordan Green, played by Alfred Molina. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it. it. Yeah, Doc Ox, Iron Man 2. I was going to say, I, like, I have, I love what I love about that scene, and this is such like a niche reference, but Carrie Mulligan's first film, An Education, he played her dad. Ah. And so, so like, for a Carrie Mulligan fan, it was like father and daughter, and then you got to the rest of the scene, and you were like, no. Yeah. <laughs> like, no. 
<laughs> but yeah, he's a fun. He was good. She, he, yeah. she says like, "It's your day of reckoning." He's like, "I've been waiting." I, but I like that. Didn't you like Loved that about the theme? Like, yeah. we'll, we'll progress. But that was that. Just that. Yeah. Before we even know what's going on, that bit was deep, and you kind of like, oh yeah, I really liked that line. So Cassie brings up Nina and how Mr. Green defended Al Monroe in the case, and he pressured Nina to drop the lawsuit. But what's different about all the other interactions that she's had with people, he remembers it and he he owns up to it. Like I think Cass, Cassie's quite thrown off by the fact that he remembers. I think she's gone in there with a plan to, you know, go in, get a revenge, but she's quite thrown off by his response. And it becomes apparent that, Mr., uh, that uh, Jordan Green regrets what's happened, saying he had an epiphany which led him to take a spatical from work. He reveals how people were hired to dig through social media accounts to find anything to defend men in these cases. And he, he was horrible for it. He asks Cassie for help. He's like, I'll never forgive myself for any of this. It's hard for me to kind of decide how I feel about that character because they've done something very wrong. And, but that, you know, they're owning up to it. And uh, it's, it's a difficult one. It's like, it's like the whole, like when people go to prison and then come out and, you know, people earn their redemption we have to give people Hmm. that chance no I was just going to say that interestingly in in, um, juxtaposition to talking about having a female character be like oh it was just she was drunk oh but it's really really fucking nice to have a male character take the role of the empathy like empath I mean like yeah I, I shouldn't have I wish I hadn't and like especially in a role where they are like the brutal like I was a lawyer I got him off and I think, like, I recently watched The Staircase on Netflix, which is about a murder. And the lawyer, even despite knowing quite clearly his client did it, still withholds this real, like, no, he didn't. No, I never. He, he just couldn't have. And you could just see in his eyes, it's like lies. And I think to have this character actually be very, like, that poor woman and have that real humanity and be rounded and not just be, again, not just lean into a cliche of like, I'm a lawyer, I'm a bastard. I'm like, and have the really genuine, like, I think there's like a point where he like leans onto Cassie's lap or something. I remember there's like a physical contact moment. He's like, he's kind of like almost on, on on all fours, like literally begging. Yeah. And like her taking that role of being like the redeemer and being like, like she doesn't, I don't believe there is a full forgiveness there, but I think she understands that this man wants to be forgiven and I just think that's a really wonderful again a wonderful contrast to have the woman being sat the dean being like I only care because I want my daughter to not be in that position versus the man actually being like I have no other context but just the pure pity and awfulness I feel it's just really great and like he's just I mean he's a fantastic actor anyway so he executed it sublimely and I believed it but for me it was a really nice if we want to talk about the remedy to the scene with the car I felt this scene was a good scene for people to come back into it and kind of be like we're not just going like men are horrible. It's like, no, there is yeah. every side to every coin. Like there is just, it's just not as black and white. It's, you know, there are unfortunately 50 shades of gray to everything. There is complexity and there is variance. And this character just embodies that. And I loved that scene. I really felt that for me was a really nice little moment of difference, especially in a revenge film as well. We don't really get those without it being like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And then they shoot them in the head or they get spared or something. You know, it really just felt like a really nice scene of mercy from Cassie and apology and pity from him. It was great. No, I agree. Um, I think the film does that loads of times where you kind of think it's going one way Mm. and then it switches. And yeah, that's, that's what's kind of brilliant about it. But yeah, so Cassie tells him that she forgives him. And she's on her way out of the house and she, she calls off a guy, like as if, like with earlier with the Madison thing and the guys went to the bar, there's a guy that went in the car and we don't know who he is. Is he like a hitman? I thought so. I thought he was probably like, or like someone just to fuck him up a bit. Yeah. Which I don't even know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> to what extent would they do it? But yeah, she, she calls it off. So whatever her plan was, 
she's mm. gone in and she's forgiven him herself. Then Cassie takes a visit to the home of Nina, who obviously where her parents are living. She talks to Nina's mother, played by Molly Shannon, who I've not seen her in many things, but I always know her as her role in Scrubs. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the ambulance driver. Yeah, oh, she's exactly. so sweet. No, it's always nice when people like that pop up and you're like, oh, that one's cool. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm just like, oh, it's nice to know she's in this like, because she only had a small part in Scrubs and she's, she's in this like, really successful. Yeah, I'm just, I'm happy for her. You go, Molly Shannon. <laughs> and yeah, she, Cassie's mum, uh, sorry, Nina's mum tells Cassie, you know, you need to let this go. You can't fix this. They've kind of taken their own way of dealing with the grief they've dealt with. Yeah, I don't know what else to really say about that part. But yeah, they kind of like, you know, encourage Cassie, you know, just to move on with your life. Because they obviously know this situation has already taken Nina's life. They don't want it to take another girl's life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the message they're kind of p- trying to pass off to Cassie here. Yeah, I also felt it was kind of like interesting because it was like a little moment about grief and kind of like these circumstances because I think older generations have been raised to kind of have an expectation of being like these things aren't going to get resolved like we aren't going to be held people aren't going to be held accountable people aren't you know there's so much historically where like women were sexually assaulted and it was kind of like you just got to get on with it and I think it's kind of like almost like modern in like in like a very quiet way I felt it was like modern versus old where like the the mother is going just move on like we can't whereas we're in like cancel culture world now where we're like no that's not okay I'm not happy I'm going to complain and I think like maybe that might not be in the intention but I felt that was like a nice little moment there where like you have like the older woman who's kind of probably lived through a few things and been like I can't speak versus the modern woman going I can and I will and I will try to yeah. and I feel like in like a very quiet way like I might be completely wrong but that's what I felt was kind of quite nice about that moment and like kind of what it made me want Cassie to carry on to kind of almost like not in an unkind way, but to kind of defy what's gone before and be like, no, I will get my revenge or there will be consequences for this man for doing that. Yeah, she doesn't want to just accept it and live her life. She wants to deal with it. Yeah. So then Cassie's back home and she's looking at an event online for Al Monroe's bachelor party, but she kind of deletes her Facebook account. She closes the account and this is like her symbolising she's taken on Nina's mother's advice. She's like putting a stop to what she's doing with this, you know, the taking revenge thing. That that really shows in the, in the next part where she kind of starts to open up herself to allow her feelings of Ryan. So Cassie visits Ryan at his apartment, apologises for what happened the other night, telling him she wants to continue or try dating again. And there's like a little bit of back and forth. I think at the first he declines the offer, but then the next scene he kind of goes into her coffee shop and says you know wants to take her out for dinner i made a little note on this part the part where she's like waiting or looks up and coming in is that really nice shot with the, the blue ornamental wall piece behind yeah. her yeah i know it like really centered it. yeah it's yeah oh, loved that Chef <laughs> and then the only notice i had to put first was an exclamation mark a couple of letters pharmacy scene i loved the pharmacy <laughs> scene so much I love it as someone who loved that song as a child. I <laughs> yeah. loved it. I remember it was like Paris Hilton's brought out a song and I was literally sat there. Like it was like my boyfriend and my friend and they were like, what is this? And I was like, even though the girls are crazy. <laughs> and they were like, you had to be there. <laughs> I proper turned the volume up at this moment. My house was probably like, what the fuck is Ryan doing? Uh, I was having like a little, a little disco in my room. But uh, I love the scene. So yeah, Cassie's kind of opened herself up to Ryan now and we get that little kind of a, a bit of a montage of them dating. They're looking quite cosy and staying over each other's apartments. But the, the kind of the scene centres around there in the pharmacy and it's, again, back to like the lighting and the colours and just the, the visuals of this film is fucking stunning. And that pharmacy yeah. scene for me was like the highlight. And yeah, the, the soundtrack is obviously Paris Hilton, uh, <laughs> Stars Are Blind, 
Bo Burnham's like, Bo Burnham, Ryan's like singing along to it and they're just, they're it's carefree. So you know, they're, oh, I loved it. And yeah, so like, I mean, that, that scene really makes us feel for this relationship. We really want Cassie to be happy with Ryan. Ryan's mm-hmm. a nice guy at the moment. Cassie, yeah, we, we're, we're, we're shipping, as the kids say. We're, do they still we're say stand. that? We're stan. We're <laughs> stan. We stand this relationship. What's really interesting is like, you mentioned like the stylization and colours and I think something and in reflection of what we're talking about, which is really odd about this film is, and it's great, and I don't know if it's intentional, but sometimes the film is almost like so sickly pink and happy. And like, even the choice of Paris Hilton is like, it's almost like the topic is so rotten and dirty and visceral and disgusting that almost like making it pink making it camp make everything like I mean even down to like the fact that Cassie's got these like incredible false eyelashes on that she's like I mean they always seem to shoot Carrie kind of looking almost doing like a Kubrick star something like chin down eyes up that like everything's almost so like unbearably cutesy and sort of like sickly sweet that it's almost like this it's like the icing over the corpse, if you will. And it's like, I thought this scene was like a really interesting play on that, of this idea of like, look how happy we are. You've forgotten this film is about rape. And it's like really, really clever. Like that whole scene, I actually was like, this is gonna, this is a comedy, man. Like I'm not like, this is a fucking great film. I completely forgot what we were watching. And it was because every like, Pink Cardigan, Ryan singing the song and being a so I was like, an, I was in a comedy. I was in a rom-com. I was fully bored. It's such a clever little tip to just kind of keep you sort of like, is this going to go how I think it's going to go? It's like, it's a great little scene. And also Paris Hilton, if you're listening, just bring out something else. We, we need more. <laughs> we need more. <laughs> it's such a good song. I mean, I think she got like... I'm pretty sure she got slated when she did it. I know, but only, uh, I love pop music. Only people with true taste really appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the next scene, we're at dinner with Cassie's parents so that they can meet Ryan. <laughs> I love this bit when her parents are like, oh, so you're, you're a doctor, your parents must be really proud. And he's like, oh, well, not really. They wanted me to be a DJ. <laughs> I really liked that. I thought that was so funny. Like sting. It stings. <laughs> <laughs> her dad says that Nina was like a daughter to them, says that we miss her, but we've missed you. He's saying like, you know, her, this, oh, this is like a private moment after dinner. They're like in the kitchen, I think. And so like, you know, Cassie's opened herself up and her parents can kind of feel that. They're like, we're getting our daughter back. Even though they don't know of this whole revenge plan. So it shows that it's really affected her personality that after she's kind of put it to her side and is allowing herself to live her life people around her are noticing it yeah later on they're in bed and ryan tells cassie he's falling in love with her and she reciprocates the affection so yeah we're, we're really we're really into this relationship we're rooting for it i think we're kind of thinking the film's going to a happy ending so back at home cassie arrives to madison waiting for her and she's been worried for a while about what happened to her in the hotel this is when we get our kind of sigh of relief. Cassie reveals nothing happened with the guy. It was just to get her in that mindset to make her think about the situation differently. And it's clearly had an impact on Madison in regards to the Nina situation as she tells Cassie she wants to show her something. Oh. So we're back inside. Madison hands Cassie a phone, telling her it contains proof of what happened to Nina. So she leaves her with the phone, says, look, here's what you want. Don't ever con- contact me again. She doesn't want any any involvement in this. She doesn't want to be included in you know what's what's to come so what you said earlier about like how she wasn't owning the situation or she was shying away from it she's still kind of doing that although she's given the proof for it to be resolved she doesn't want people to know that she's had any involvement yeah she's like willing to fire the gun she just doesn't want the shrapnel to hit her sort of thing it's it's a again it's an interesting idea of 
preservation that a lot of people have around it's, it's almost like in a weird way and it's a very weird link to make but it's almost like when we had those things where uh, sort of like um 80s tv presenters were coming out with all the scandals and everyone was like yeah but I, I mean I never saw it and you know like if this comes out and you just sort of felt like well why would you you mm, you were in the studio like you couldn't have dodged it and I feel like that's her moment of being like I saw the film but I wasn't in the room and it's kind of it's that really typical behavior of a lot of people who just don't who fear consequence and again it's fantastic it's a woman and not a bloke doing it I think that's a really nice little play on expectation so uh, we're watching the video and this is like the I felt dread watching watching the scene because I, I I didn't suspect it coming until about a few seconds before. But when you're watching the video and you start to hear voices, and I was like, "Oh no, it's coming, it's mm. coming!" And then we hear Ryan's voice. Penny dropped. Ryan is not a nice guy. Mm. He's been involved since the beginning. Although he probably believes he's a nice guy now. This is this thing that's happened years ago, but he was involved. This is something that that happened. He's yeah. Oh. We don't like Ryan anymore. No, he got into hell. And this is the only bit, and again, if you've got this far and not seen it, like one, fair play for carrying on listening. And two, I would say this is kind of, it's not a trigger warning scene because you don't see anything. But I think this for me was the first bit of the film that I had a lump in my throat. And I think for a lot of women, this will be the scene that will be the first proper foot in the door of the subject matter and I think they did it so well because I think we're so used to now especially like I'm sorry horror genre I love you but you know um stuff like Nightingale when they depicted a rape it was like here is a rape look at it see it for what it is and it's almost like violence in a way like sometimes rape is important to show and it's you know it's um honest and painful but other times it's almost a little bit like oh, it's a rape. How do you feel? Is that provocative enough for you? And I felt this film was very clever because we got the sound, we heard, and it was horrible, but it wasn't like, oh, did that upset you? Ooh, we're going to show you some more. It was kind of, it wasn't, it wasn't provocative or gruesome or cruel. It was just enough. And it was actually so superb from Carrie Mulligan because her whole face was just telling us from like, what am I seeing to, ha- oh, that's shit. And like, that was enough. So I would say for anyone who hasn't seen this film, this is the moment that I'd be like, put your seatbelt on because you're going for a ride from here with. (laughs) Like, trigger warnings and everything. uh, The pharmacy scene is long gone. And we're not singing Paraton anymore. (laughs) I like what you said there, like comparing it to other revenge films with a rape scene. Like, this didn't need to do anything for shock value. Mm. This was all in the performance of Carrie's, Mm. you know, facial expressions. We know what's going on. And so, yeah, of course, this is a this is a rape scene on video, but we don't see it. You just kind of hear the audio. And yeah, we found out Ryan was there. Ryan was involved. And Cassie immediately confronts him, shows him the video, threatening to send the video out unless Ryan tells her where the bachelor party is. He says a really interesting line where he's like, I don't know if I can live with the threat of this hanging over me. Almost like putting the guilt on them to be releasing the information. But you did it. Mm. You, you made your actions. Mm. Anyway, so she, she gets the location of the address for the party. And this is when the kind of the, the theme of the film, if you will, comes in. The toxic. Da, 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 da. We love it. <laughs> oh, so good. Um, yeah, we see Cassie kind of getting ready for her, her final showdown. So title cards, four. But isn't it interesting as well with this? What I find really fascinating about horror is I think we're the only genre that creates icons. I think we, we you know, we have like Freddy Krueger, Jason, and there are they are so symbolized, Mike Myers, so symbolized by like images, faces. And I felt with this film with what Cassidy wears to 
the party is going to be the thing we're going to see of Halloween. It's really interesting that we really consider what the final boss moments look like or like what the monster looks like. And I felt the minute she got prepared to go to the bachelor party, I felt like I'm going to go on Amazon and I'm going to see that and I'm going to buy it. How? I'm going to buy it. But it was like, it's really interesting that like we seem to always choreograph images to represent our films. And I felt that this was the moment we almost had the cat. It was like, that was Cassie as we knew her. And then this is Cassie, the monster. This is Cassie. The, she's become the beast of everything that's happened to her. And this is what she looks like now. And when we're not going to see her be the same girl again. And I just felt that was such a like, and even like the fact that it's kind of clowny and like, it's kind of like Technicolor and we're kind of getting little nods to like Harley Quinn and Joker and the kind of like black eye makeup. It, like, it's just such a fantastically dramatic transition. And especially saying as the scene prior where she sees the video, she's in this like little floral dress with like the fresh vegetables under her arms. And it's just this wonderful, like, like this is yeah. what happens. And it's, the, and it's like the echo of the sexual assault. It's like, you are one day this woman and then you wake up the next day and you're that woman. And I felt this was that moment for Cassie. And it just feels really iconic and really interesting. And I feel it'll be something that we might lead to seeing as a cult image of like women revenge horror, like horror going forward as that sort of costume and that nurse's outfit. And it's, it's really great. I felt like as a conceptual vision, it was like chef's kiss again. Love it. Yeah, very, very iconic <laughs> yeah. look. Yeah, so... Cassie arrives at the door and she's uh, she's greeted by Joe, played by Max Greenfield, who we know as Schmidt from New Girl. Wasn't he an interesting casting? Like, didn't you feel like when he came up, I was like, I was like, okay, like he's going to cause trouble. Like, because I, lo- like, I love Schmidt. Like, Schmidt isn't a bad person in New Girl, but because he's so fucking charismatic and handsome, I was like, he's either going to, like, be the fucking hero or the fucking villain of this bit. Like, it's going to go one or two ways because he just opens the door and he's got that, like, amazing, like, hair smile. He's like oh, she's here. And you're like, yeah, this is, this is, this is bad. <laughs> it goes back to what you said about Adrian Brody. Like you only really see him in nice guy roles. Yeah. And it's almost the same with uh, Max Greenfield. I mean, I know he's done quite a lot more than New Girl. I've not seen him in many no, things. Me but again, I, I mostly associate him with Schmidt and I really like Schmidt. He's a nice guy. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it plays on, the, the casting's just brilliant, isn't it? Like casting these nice guys as we know them yeah. to play the assholes. <laughs> And yeah, we get that kind of eerie second. She walks she walks in and the door closes and you get that kind of second or two where we're just like, what is she going to do? Why? <laughs> she leads the party to believe that she's like a hired stripper. She's pouring alcohol in all their mouths before she takes the groom upstairs. So Al Monroe, obviously the groom. And she handcuffs him to the bed whilst he claims he's like a gentleman. He says like, oh, you don't need to do that. I'm a gentleman. She's like, sometimes gentlemen are the worst, which is, I think, a nod to the whole like nice guy mm-hmm. Thing, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. and then once restrained he asks for her name her real name and she tells him it's nina fisher immediately al knows the name thinking he's being set up for a joke you know so we've, we've had these people that have pretended to not know who she is not remember the situation but this guy clearly knows yeah. he you know no question and it's interesting that as well like it contextually he jumps to it being a joke first which goes to show that that circumstance has been joked about before which i think in some circumstances when girls have been in those situations a lot of blokes are kind of it's kind of like that wolf like I hate to say wolf packs it makes me think of um the fucking hangover but it is that like wolf pack dynamic of like we'll defend each other it was kind of funny I can't believe we did that oh my god and I felt like that was a really interesting little lean like just in a line it was just like have I been set up it's kind of like so it's been discussed it's been laughed about and it has been sort of like locker room chatted like it's been contextualized into funny as opposed to tragic definitely agree with that but yeah he says like you're not Nina Fisher because she's dead 
And Cassie reveals that the rest of the party are now passed out because she slipped something in the alcohol. And Cassie obviously reveals her true identity and Al begins to panic. This scene, again, was so tense because I'm like, what is going to happen here, you know? And you get this kind of the exchange between them. Some of the lines I've kind of highlighted when he says, this is every guy's worst nightmare, getting accused, something like this. And then she's like, can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? And that was such a great little back and forth moment because... It kind of goes back to what Ryan said when he was like, I can't live with the guilt of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Consequences of your own actions, yeah. you know. It kind of also nods back to the Dean where the weight of ruining a man's life is considered greater. And like that then, like, so he he mean like, this is like the worst thing that could happen to me. I've got like, I've got a good career. And then it's like, it's considered worse than a woman being raped. And it, it's like that yeah. wonder, like it's such a, like you said, it's such a wonderful little, it's like sort of, finesse back from Cassie of like I throw your words right back at you and oh we love it we love it Cassie tells Al how Nina had to carry the weight of Armand Rowe's name so as revenge he should carry hers and she goes to like carve his name in his skin with a knife but he manages to like break free and he suffocates her to death I was floored by this. I honestly could not believe it. I don't want to embarrass myself with this podcast. I cried a proper midsummer Gregarian chant kind of cry. I was like, I like my poor, my poor long suffering boyfriend was like, it's okay. It's just a film. And I was like, just like, because it just felt like, and perhaps again, it's altering expectation, but we watched so many revenge things where like women can literally be like stabbed, shot, thrown off a cliff, raped whatever and they still come out at the end and they're like yeah i'm gonna get you for doing that and it was just like so she's gonna wait she's gonna she's gonna wake up and like again like some really hyper realistic moments were like her screaming in the pillow and i just found myself being like they can't do this it's fine it's like it's a film then she she's gonna survive she's just gonna show up at the end and it's all and no no she's it was absolutely yeah. it was devastating like you said devastating is the exact word it's devastating i was almost in denial that she was dead mm until we see something which we'll get to in a moment. So we're now at the following morning and Joe has come back into the room, realises what's happened and he comforts Al saying they're going to fix it. How, how disgusting is this that he's so loyal to like his bro that he excuses murder on top of everything else that they're all aware of what's gone on. There's now been a murder and he's just like, oh, we'll, we'll sort it, we'll, we'll hide Doesn't it. Doesn't he say something like she's just a prostitute or something? I swear, I need. now this is where I need to get my quote right, but I swear he says something like she's just a hooker. Again, which contextualizes this whole idea of like historical things are like from Jack the Ripper to the fucking like future that like prostitutes and sex workers are just like, it's fine. It doesn't matter. She's dead. She's just a fucking prostitute. And so like that in itself, like if that had just been the film where like he'd accidentally killed a prostitute, like that in itself is fucking terrible. But knowing what we know, it's just like, it's like, it's not a prostitute. It's Cassie. How fucking dare you? Like it's the most painful scene. <laughs> the whole, I mean, the whole, how a lot of society views sex workers is like a whole other topic for, I could go into that so Girl, much. Girl, we need a whole other episode. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they kind of, they come up with this plan and we then see Joe and Al, uh, Joe and Al burning the body. So this is the moment that I was really shocked because like I said, up until this point, I was just in such denial. I was like, they've just killed off Cassie. And when you see her hand and the, the nail varnish poking out from under the fire, that was it was tough to see, you know, like we can watch some gruesome horror films and watching, you know, Drew Barrymore hanging from a tree with her guts out and not be phased. I know. But this particular shot of like her hand out of the fire was it was deep. I was really, really floored by it. I think it's because it's like a disregard from like, like going back to like what we were talking about at the beginning of like what horror, like what we sort of feel like horror should be like. 
I think when we watch, like, I'm trying to think of something really ludicrous off the top of my head, like something like Saw, like someone gets their like guts pulled out of their asshole, right? And you're like, okay, that's like, I mean, someone would have to have a warehouse and a lot of free time and, you know, like, who do you pay to fix that up for you? And there's a lot of things I have to talk about with Saw. I'm just like the like employment and crazy shit. And, it, <laughs> and you sort of watch it, you kind of like disassociate and be like, okay, that's fine. Whereas I think with stuff like what happens where they burn Cassie, I think because it seems so makeshift and impromptu and so sort of like weirdly violent, it's so much more offensive because, you know, you do see things where men do commit atrocities and it's like, or even, you know, um, you know, third world countries where women try to liberate themselves and then are, are killed or burnt or gotten rid of. And it, it's that really inhuman where the woman stops being a human and becomes a disposable object. It's like, we'll just burn her. She's just gone. Just put her on the fire. Yeah, she's gone. And I think like her hand comes out and they push it in or something. And it's like, yeah. I remember thinking to myself, like, she's not fucking dead wood. That's a fucking woman. And just being so full of like this, this anger I couldn't articulate and just this like disregard for this. And like, because we've gone on this entire journey and we've seen her family hurt for her. We've seen her try to get her life back. We've seen Laverne Cox at her, you know, coffee house trying to like build her. Like we've seen so much. And for like just this little life to be like sparked out. And like, I suppose like, I mean, I suppose that's as genuine as life is. Like we all live and then we just spark out. But I think in that film, they really built this wonderful connection to Cassie that when it went out we were just like no no that can't happen that can't happen it was it was so humanly cruel and I think that's what horror sometimes doesn't always achieve is they go for the gratuitous and the shocking so we go like oh my god their eyeballs have fallen out but that's not human I couldn't go into a room and push someone's I mean I could maybe but realistically whereas that kind of weird pack mentality of like we'll just burn her yeah it's fine there's wood there's wood there's fire yeah that's fine we'll do it just felt real and I, I felt scared I felt scared and I felt angry and I felt sad and I think yeah. it's fantastic that it achieves that with just such a sort of small little gesture of like a hand wilting out it's just like mm. <laughs> Cassie I, I love what you said then it, yeah it really makes it human because you kind of see the panic even on their end of like obviously you don't see them planning what they're going to do but it kind of jumps from the scene where they say they're going to sort it and then to the fire so they obviously like quick decision what should you do I'll burn the body yeah we're in a wood we're in a wood there's like accessibility we can just do that so then the police are investigating the disappearance of cassie a detective turns up at a parent's house and then visits ryan at work so the police are investigating the disappearance of cassie and a detective visits a parent and then visits ryan at work ryan doesn't tell everything he knows he's holding back information because obviously he knows that she went to the bachelor party i think obviously he's holding back the information because he's kind of thinking about himself again like if he kind of reveals why he knows she went there it's gonna lead to more questions and you know the detective's very quick to kind of just shut this off you know he's yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, cool. I think he even thanks him for what he does for the community and his job. You know. Yeah, he does, me. Yeah. And then to our Al Monroe's wedding day, and it's after the ceremony. There, it's like outdoors wedding, and Ryan receives like a text message, which it says like scheduled message from Cassie. We kind of then jump in between Cassie because then we also then see that Jordan Green, so the lawyer from earlier on, um, Alfred Marlowe's character, he's at home and he receives a package in the post containing the phone, which has the video and a letter informing him of where Cassie went the night of her demise, saying that in the event of her disappearance, please give this to the police. So then, like, you know, as a viewer, we're, we're seeing what's going on here. We jump back to Ryan. The text message says, you didn't think this would end, did you? And then that's when, like, the police sirens are coming in. And then uh, I love a use of title cards in films. And to get one so impactful so late in the film, when it just flashes the five and you're like, yes, there was like, there's I something know, else to come. Yeah. So the police are arriving at the wedding. Al and Joe look at each other, like really worried. They know what's going on. And um, I think Joe like 
runs away. Yeah. <laughs> and again, we jump over to like the, the boss at the coffee shop who receives receives like a, a letter from Cassie and they're back to the wedding. Joe's fleeing from the police. Al gets taken away. And yeah, so final text to Ryan, love, Cassie and Nina. So Cassie's plan was obviously she's scheduled and orchestrated this this plot to even in even after her death, she's managed to get everyone to ever everyone involved in the you know the original crime that took place there she's getting a justice it's really really fucking bittersweet like i was so conflict like i was punching the sky going like yes every five minutes but then also like it's so it's such a complicated conversation because it was something i really was like i was like unpacking as i finished it i was like i had so much to say and i was i feel like the best way i can articulate it is so many good things about that ending were based around like Cassie sort of knowing she had to do what she, you know, knowing she was probably not going to make it, but in doing so managed to successfully pull this all off. It's almost like she couldn't be there to see kind of like V Vendetta in a way, like where he couldn't see his revolution, but he, he kind of trusted in the process. And I think what, what I love about this film, but what gave the only thing that gave me complexes about it is I think sometimes what's tragic is that a lot of these things aren't resolved until it's taken to this higher stake. And I think like the Nina situation was only given gravitas because Cassie died and unpacked that whole thing for everyone. And it made me think of um, Grace Mullane, who was a young girl who went out to Australia and she got absolutely mutilated by she was raped and mutilated and it was almost like that situation was given such gravitas because of what happened to her and because it was so extreme and I think the only thing that I felt sad about with that film is I kind of almost wish it didn't have that ending to prove that that result could happen for women without there being an extreme to it though I loved it and though I was overjoyed and like honestly like when you were explaining it then I had like the goosebumps of memory of being like oh I love that ending but I think like the only thing I wished for that film and I still I, maybe it wouldn't fit into a horror category or maybe it would be something studios wouldn't want because it wouldn't have weight is I just almost I almost prayed that Cassie would show up at the wedding and address and be like hi suckers to just kind of have that idea of like we don't have to go to an extreme or it doesn't have to be such violence or sadness for a woman's case to be solved or, or like to be validated or whatever but I mean it was like honestly like I literally was sat, <laughs> I was like sat on my own like yes yes Cassie and like the two boys next to me were, like okay like you are like we have neighbors and they will hear you so it was like a real happy sad ending and I, I I I really hope when it gets its international distribution and hopefully when it gets to the awards that it will get seen because I think if there is a film that can show women that you know if we're bold enough to speak we can get results that's the film to do it and so I'm kind of hoping it'll be this like catalyst for progress and like people will see it and be like, I should say something, but I just wish the message wasn't that it had to be so extreme to get that result. I kind of hoped in a quiet way that Cassie would sort of just show up and be like, bitches, hi, you're a cunt, you're a cunt, you're a cunt. And, you know, they'd all go to prison, but <laughs> it was great. I mean, the film, the film did get mixed reviews f- for that reason. My take on it, it is still a film. It's not based on, obviously it's based on real situations that happened, but it's not yeah. a true story. Yeah, so we yeah. are still getting that kind of fictional finale just to kind of, like you said, it's, it is bittersweet because we're kind of happy that she's got this final plan, but then you're kind of like, oh, but, She's still dead. <laughs> yeah. And I think, yeah, like the police arriving in a dramatic fashion to the wedding, it gives the rapist their like comeuppance, mm, mm. For, as, uh, you know, from, from an audience perspective, which we know is not always and not even commonly the way that these cases are handled. Mm. But yeah, I, I think Cassie's cat had to die to show that even the culprit, even after the culprits are prosecuted, 
lives have still been ruined. Oh, that's a very good point. That is a very good point. This leaves the film without a happy ending for the viewer. For me, this is why I love horror and stuff. It leaves a lasting impression for Mm. longer. Mm. Have you ever seen, as an example, Eden Lake? Fucking hell. Oh, that stayed with me for so long because the ending is horrible. There's a lot of people that love a happy ending. And and I I remember I watched that, I think, when we were in lockdown last year. For the first time, I know it's quite an old film now, but I watched it and I was like, I was so floored by it. I was like, I made made my friends watch it. And so many of them were like, that was horrible. Why would you enjoy that? And I'm just like, yeah, but... It had such an impact as yeah. a film, and that's that's what I like. No, and it, Eden Lake and Promising Young Woman pull from a similar string, I think, which is that realism, because Eden Lake is about that sort of, it kind of comments on class in England in a way, and it's also got that sort of fantastic, like, hyper-realistic horror that I think, though Promising Young Woman kind of elevates it, still at its base has it. And, yeah, I agree. It's kind of, and also, like, not to sound like a complete wanky like mm, but like it's not real to have a happy ending and perhaps there is something in promising young woman that like a cassie character in real life might not have lived to have seen it because she'd have been so fucked over by it but that is what i love about those films and that is what i love about horror and there's another film called lake mungo which has a very like i mean it's it goes supernatural and kind of goes there but in its heart it's a documentary and it's very flat and real and I think that's what lures us to these films. And I think that's where we get our most satisfaction away from horror is when we get these moments of, even if there's small moments within the film of realism that make us connect to it. And I think that's where we get our most satisfaction. And I think Promising Young Woman just executed so many familiar things for women that I hope when it gets its release that more people see it, that there'll be like a catharsis. And like I said, like a progress perhaps where people will go, shit, we, we're still getting away with that. People are still allowed to get away with that. Men are still getting away with that. We're still saying these words. We're still saying, oh, but it will ruin his future. Like, I think that's the horror that, like, it's not even the horror that someone was raped. It's the horror that we haven't changed how we've spoken about rape. And it's just, it's, it's just such a good film. <laughs> I, feel like a film. Every, I feel like every five minutes I've just broken to be like, such a good film. It's such a good film. <laughs> if you haven't seen it, it's such a good film. <laughs> And also what a wonderful differentiation from revenge, like the amount of revenge. I know you consume horror as much as I do. The amount of times you've watched a revenge film where at the end, it's like the girl covered in blood and she's like half naked and she's like, <sighs> she's got a machine gun and she's like, I've done it. And you're just like, but what are you going to do now? Have a shower and go home? Like, whereas at least promising young women, it was kind of like, well, realistically, I suppose she's dead. And, you know, like there is consequence and people's lives are going to be ruined as opposed to just sort of looking sexy and covered in blood. I mean, I do love the whole final girl type shot, like ready or not. I love final girl. But yeah, I, th- I think like this film, it, c- it has so much more weight to it that it, it can't just finish in that kind of way. Yeah. You know, it can't yeah. have a looking, you know, drenched in blood with a shotgun, like... <laughs> we'd love done, her you know. to show up. We'd love her to show up. I mean, I would be more than happy if Cassie showed up to the wedding with a shotgun and just killed them. But yeah, I think what I've prayed for with revenge, it's mainly the revenge side of horror. I think, I, I mean, I'm a bitch, I love a final girl. Like, final girls are my kink as far as I go. But like, I think what I always get upset with, with revenge, especially in context of rape, is normally like at the end, they're always kind of weirdly weirdly sexual in a way that's like I don't think like they sort of sit there and go like we're going to make a little fit but it's always kind of like <sighs> a bang and you're just like mm. whereas like at least with this one it was like there is no sexuality she fucking died and they've got to fucking live with that and they're like that her parents aren't going to live to see her happy and like and I just felt that was why not <laughs> I mean I don't want that I don't want to sit and feel miserable but I felt for a revenge when we think of like classic revenge the most satisfaction we get is when there's kind of just and I thought that was just as opposed to being sort of like sexy or for titillation or for just sort of like 
to be out there. It was like just a good, solid revenge or tragedy with a good ending. Revenge or tragedy? What am I like? Shakespeare, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of points I've kind of made then, like kind of going back to certain moments in the film. So when the police are investigating and Cassie's parents say that she was getting better, so jump back to what I thought was the take on her mother's view of her life at like the beginning of the film. I believe this now shows like how sexual assault can affect people around the victims too. Because mm-hmm. obviously we've had Al Monroe, even before the murder of Cassie, had already been responsible for taking the lives of Nina and uh, yeah, now Cassie. And Cassie's death will now have an effect on others. So like her friend at the coffee shop, which when we see like the, the necklaces. So Cassie always had the, she had a Cassie necklace and a Nina necklace, like the broken heart thing, but she gives her Cassie part. Yeah. So Cassie carried the Nina one. I think that was like still on her when she died. Yeah. And she gave the Cassie one to her friend at the coffee shop to kind of like pass on the, you know, I know we haven't seen loads of the friendship between those two, but like, like what I said about how it affects more than just, just the, the victim that creates more victims because now you've got these people that are sad about the loss of their, you know, their friend, their daughter. And yeah, so like it's, I think the, the, the necklaces like symbolize like a kind of like a, a chain of events of who it affects, you know? Yeah, completely. And I think that's something that's not always considered. Like when you think of um, these cases, I think they sort of center on like, it's either like the young man's career ruined or it's the woman who's kind of been shamed. But you're very right in what you say that, you know, there is, if the women survive it, and even if the women are successful in passing a judgment on the man, there is therapy, there's everything like that. There's a complication. I mean, there was even something in the news today, which completely astounded me, which was there was a woman who wanted therapy for the abuse she'd faced and she'd been held captive by a partner and they wouldn't be given the sort of like higher level therapy she required until the um the court had passed judgment on him and you think that that woman's been through enough and she needs the therapy now but until they can prove the man did it she kind of isn't allowed to touch it and you just think like that's creating more trauma because that's isolating her feelings and going like your feelings aren't valid until we've proven he's done it and I felt with like a little bit with Promising Young Woman it was kind of like it wasn't until Cassie died that Nina was given weight and it's just like it just shouldn't have even got that bad and because of that like like you said like you know Jennifer Coolidge you know who's obviously like a fragile woman and portrays a fragile woman in the film has now lost a daughter a daughter she had aspirations for and hopes for and then um, Laverne Cox's character has got a friend that she was really, like, it, and even stuff like, I mean, I hate to give him any space for what he did, but even like um, Bo Burnham's character, Ryan, that kind of like, I could have, I should have, and I didn't. And because of that, two people are now dead. And it's like this, like, re- and like, I mean, he filmed the rape, he didn't perform the rape. So, you know, what your moral standing on his position in it is, he's still going to have that forever and it's it and it goes to show that like you know when we talk about rape we we assume it's just sex and we just sort of say like oh just someone had sex with someone and it really isn't it's this whole it's sort of like the domino it's like you flick the first one and before you know it there's like 200 down it's you know and it's affecting their work it's affecting the way they eat it's affecting their friend it's just this is insane and I think this film like you said in that very subtle way with the passing on of the necklace it's that kind of like I take this grievance onto you now. You will understand my pain. You will, you know, it's tragic. It's really tragic, but it's done in such a beautifully subtle way that I think anyone who wants to be attuned to it can be, but anyone who wants to ignore that fact can kind of just see it as a superficial exchanging of like friendship necklaces and kind of leave it. So yeah, it's incredibly painful, but beautifully done. It's such a good film. Such a good film. (laughs) 
so the, the kind of the overall message I like I remember after I watched it I was thinking like everyone needs to see this film I think especially like you know I, I think men in particular need to see this film if you know if you're going out to a club if you're like one of those kind of guys you might not even know it sometimes like the whole like thinking they're a nice guy image thing and like just just watch this film you know and just look at how those small little parts that you think you're being a nice guy is what builds on and builds on and then you know I'm not calling everyone like a fucking rapist or anything like that but like it all comes down to how you're making these women feel and just look at the situations that do happen Mm. and then wonder why women can be so scared of these kind of interactions Mm. and things and just yeah, it just it, it's it's an entertaining film, but it really needs to like serve as a lesson. And yeah, I just I really hope so many people see this film and it can kind of change things completely. And I think as well, like as the film gets responded to, I wonder if it's going to challenge any questions about like how we how we help men because I think sometimes with these things, when you think about that film, there's a lot of men who don't claim what they did they don't own up to it and I think because there's a shame around the and it's like a subtle shame I don't believe it's like a real you know like it's not a full-on shame but I think because when men are young and especially the context of promising young women it being when they were young she was drunk there's been a lot of things historically where like men have been like ashamed to like admit they're a virgin or there's a a lot of male shame and masculine shame and so when they have sex, they kind of they kind of go for vulnerable women because it's kind of like they wouldn't say no. I can't be criticised for my technique, <laughs> like, and it sounds really silly, but it's these things that like lad culture has forced onto men, where it's like you've got to be like you've got to have the skills, you've got to have the sex, you've got to have this. And I kind of hope this film and the way that like the men are like, I'm good, I'm fundamentally good, and I believe I'm good. It will kind of make people think like, is there something I'm not discussing or feeling or is there something about my sexuality I'm not comfortable with and is is this something I do like the bit where he realizes she's sober and he's like oh fuck and it's because he's worried that if she was sober she probably wouldn't fancy him and I think it's like this interesting dialogue about like men's mental health and how they approach themselves because maybe if we taught men to be more vulnerable and comfortable and happy in themselves maybe they wouldn't harm women (laughs) like I know that sounds really silly as like a statement but I felt that was a lot of what like the good guy technique is so guys are hoping that if they're all squeaky clean girls will go out with them but nine times out of ten it just forces them into having to do these things because the girls don't receive them or don't reciprocate them so they kind of have to go there and I just wonder if, if this film could ever sort of provoke this idea of like men having more of a conversation about their own sexuality and how they approach it and maybe they don't have to be a woman doesn't have to be drunk which is goes back to your point about the date like just being fucking comfortable enough and like allowing people and having that conversation with people where it's like you don't have to drink to be with someone or like to like yourself enough because we associate drinking a lot with like oh if I'm drunk I'm sexy or if I'm drunk I can approach the girl and I think that's a conversation that should be changed and like especially the fact that Nina's raped when they're all drunk goes to show there's like an abdication of like I'm drunk so it can happen and I just think if we kind of look into male culture and lad culture and drinking and sexuality there'd probably be a way of diffusing all of this and like I think this film kind of quietly reflects that maybe without making it the point that definitely points towards it <laughs> does that make sense I don't know no yeah I, I totally agree. <laughs> I've got so many things in regards to alcohol to talk about yeah there, there's there's a lot of conversations that can be had about this film so before we kind of end one thing I wanted to bring up is I spit on your grave <laughs> Because I watched this last summer and I think I was messaging you whilst I was watching it. Yeah. Because it was on this like list that I was following of like all these horror films to what it was like a bingo list thing. I was ticking them off. Some of them were proper <laughs> dog shit. I don't know who made that list. But anyway, I was watching I Spit in Your Grave. I didn't know anything about it. All I'd heard was that it had been banned before and things like that. So I was like, all right, okay, what am I going to get here? And I think I was like 20 minutes in and I think I messaged you and I was just like, I'm so uncomfortable <laughs> watching this. This is like, 
this is not entertaining at all. No. And I just wanted to get a bit of your take on like kind of the, the comparison of that kind of rape revenge to Promising Young Woman. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I would really like to formally apologize to anyone who likes I Spit on Your Grave. Um, <laughs> like just finish the podcast, meet yourself, cut yourself a cup of tea and just leave. Um, <laughs> I think, so I, I watched it a very long time ago and actually at a time where I wasn't vocally aware of like how to articulate how I felt about that film or like couldn't feel comfortable enough to articulate how I felt about that film. And it's interesting in horror culture because I feel it can be divisive. We get we get horror fans who are just love the genre, will watch anything and enjoy it. And then we get the ones who are like, the more fucked up, the better. Yeah, it's really great. It's really fucked up. And when I watched I Spoke in Your Grave, it was one of those like, this is really fucked up. Yeah, you're going to really love it. It's really fucking fucked up. I'm, I'm really edgy. I really like fucked up stuff. And I've always red flagged these people because I'm just like, what are you not nourishing? And you're like, what's not, what's not filling your bones that you have to go there? But I was like, okay, I'll give it a go. And I think my problem with I Spit on Your Grave started with this idea that the problem with a lot of revenge rape films in particular, and I feel like they've become quite trendy. Like there's another film called uh, Megan is Missing, which is just, I could literally monologue about how much I hate that film, but it's a similar kind of premise where like a woman is kind of raped and then like awful things happen that kind of lessen the rape. So in Ice Spoken Your Go, for example, she is raped and harmed by these men, but then proceeds to mutilate, torture and harm them. And the issue is, and this is why Promising Your Woman is so fantastic, is that rape is life-altering. When someone is raped, it isn't sex. It isn't what you know it to be. It isn't what you imagine sex to be. It is as bizarre and alienating as John Hurt having a monster coming out of his stomach, an alien. It is as frightening as the body snatches. It is absolutely total invasion in a way that is incomprehensible because you stop being your own person. And I think rape causes suicide it causes unwanted pregnancies it causes body dysmorphia it is you know women when we have sex like we have something entering our bodies it is allowing something inside of us like that's frightening like you know people are resisting a covid injection right now but like you know like we'll have sex and like that's a similar principle and so when it's something you don't want it's a real incomprehensible invasion it really is alien and disgusting and cruel and barbaric and so to watch this film where it's almost depicted as titillating or not as bad as for example being (laughs) dangled over a bath of acid contextually no it's not you're being dangled over a bath of acid and you're going to die and it's fucking horrible but to take the weight off something that is so transformative like women you lose your part you die you die when you're raped you die like there is like this goes like, you know, innocence, like whatever context you're harmed in, it takes. And so to kind of then gratuitously flip to something that is so not real and is so like, yeah, look at this, his eyes are being pecked out or his guts are coming out his ass. It's kind of tasteless and childish. And it just annoys me that when people go, oh, I want fucked up shit that there's like a dehumanization to it where it's kind of like I don't care what is harmed I just want to be titillated and I think rape isn't something that you know I know it sounds bizarre but like fantastical gore and like people being dripped over acid baths or whatever like 
nine times out of 10, that ain't happening to you, is it? You're not going to be like, oh, it's so tragic, my neighbor Jeff. Like, he went down, he had a bath the other day and it was acid in it and he got his tongue out. You'll never believe what was in his bathtub. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, he, he put some lush bath bomb in, it was acid, fucking mug. Whereas statistically, you will probably know someone who's been raped. You will. We probably, like, one in two, one in three. Like, there's got to be some statistic I can probably pluck out if I thought to get one. And so to kind of pose something so human and real and sad and fucking tragic against the backdrop of being like, yeah, but look at this, it's fucking worse. Like, don't you dare take away from that. And that's what Promising Young Women just so fantastically illuminates is that no rape isn't some sort of girl being like please don't rape me oh my god are you gonna do me in doggy oh i really hate that it's like no it's your mum's gonna cry if you're raped your mum's sad your dad's sad your fucking friendships are ruined your whole sexual being is completely fucking distorted it's not some titillating shit that just sells a film and also nine times out of ten in horror which i really think needs to change is it's just used as a plot device it's like it's like this woman is raped so she becomes a murderer and seriously you don't want to commit atrocities after you've been raped because you know what an atrocity is so you don't want to put that onto someone else so stop making women seem like these sort of tragic hormonal hurricanes that then go out and do these things because they're not like when you are raped it is so tragically all-encompassing that I don't have time to cut off a waste man's dick. Like, I, like even if he raped me, I'd just be like, I don't have time. I'm too sad. I'm too fucking, I'm dealing with me. And I just think, I Spit on Your Grave just does this fantastically bad job of downplaying rape and making it titillating and making it, I mean, even the fact, excuse me, the fucking poster is a picture of her bum. Have you noticed mm. that before? Yeah. It's her bum with a blade. Like, are you kidding? It's like, oh, look, she's got a cute ass. Ooh. And it's just like, and I just think this whole culture around, you know, oh, I love how fucked up this is. Oh my God, it's so fucked up. And I, I, I do, I am that, I am, I'm like the equivalent of the guy with the guitar playing Wonderwater party. I will sit next to someone and be like, do you want me to unpack why it's not okay? And I think horror invites horror. To quote Cassie, what do you think every woman's worst fear is? And I get that. But I think until we find a way, and I think Promising Young Woman is the first stepping stone, I think until we find a way of authentically communicating rape in a way that isn't titillating, gratuitous, or without humanity, it shouldn't be there. And because I think it equates to the same level of, like, we watch children, like, if a child gets harmed in film, everyone's like, oh my God, it's awful. And I think it's as bad as that. It is as bad. It literally is as tragic and cruel and sad. And it shouldn't be treated in the same league as someone's eyes being pulled out their ass because someone's eyes being pulled out their ass doesn't happen every day, but a woman is probably raped every day. So stop treating it like it's some sort of phenomenal, shocking thing. It's not a shock. It's, it's not a novelty in the film. No, it's not. That's what I hate about Ice Put on Your Grave. It's like, she might get raped, but look, his eyes are like melting. And I'm like, yeah, but people's eyes melting isn't a fucking stat. It's not like, oh, Ryan, did your eyes melt the other day? Mine did. But we probably know women. So stop. Hmm. <laughs> I have to stop myself. Otherwise, You'll be like, two hours in and Becky is still going. But <laughs> I just think there's just this really horrible trend in horror where it's okay to create gore and gruesomeness to be titillating and frightening and silly because that is kind of what a lot of people go to and are hungry for because it's so out of norm and it's so shocking and it's so like, I wouldn't know what my lungs falling out my chest would look like. Now I can go see it. But rape, it's not titillating. It's not shocking. It is a very real thing. And I think it's handled with kid gloves by a lot of, unfortunately, male writers who don't show a lot of empathy, which I think and hope the sort of distribution of promising young women will change. Monologue over. 
and see. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's brilliant. I mean, I, I know everyone's got opinions on films, but I would be quite openly saying I, I really hated Us Bit On Your Grave. It was just, I, we, we, won't, we won't go further, but yeah, I, I, I completely, completely agree with you. I didn't like it at all. Well, thank you for allowing that like 10 minute fucking one. <laughs> oh no, I wanted that. I've been, I've been waiting Ooh, for we're that. ready. <laughs> but yeah, so thank you so much for coming on this today. This has been a lovely evening. I know we've discussed some dark topics and we kind of, you know, we knew what we were going for, but... Um, but we've had a laugh. It's, yeah, it's just it's just great to talk to a passionate film fan. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we'll definitely get you back on again. You, you mentioned something interesting about Saw as well. We Bitch. need to do a Saw episode. Bitch. I will do Saw. <laughs> I, will sit, I will write you like a, like 800 page notes on Saw. We have to, um, we have to unpack that franchise and especially with the new film coming out. I'm intrigued. Yes. I'm, I'm, re- I'm really looking forward to it. They're like, oh, we're going to we're gonna change it. And it's like, I bet you anything, there's going to be a chainsaw at some point. And there's going to be a contraption that you would definitely need at least five tradesmen in on. <laughs> I just feel like what, like you would hate to be the guy who gets invited to like jigsaws. Like, so you want a saw, right? Okay. In the wall, yeah. Well, it's plastered, so we're going to have to take that out. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I just watch those films and I just think of like the guy down being cute, trying to find like a big enough saw and being like, is that I've never ever <laughs> thought about the, the manual labor required for saw. And that's think all about I'm it. Think about yeah. it. Think about <laughs> it. It'll take your evening out. <laughs> Um, so just before we go then uh, with our guests we like to leave on like a bit of a recommendation for anything else you've been watching lately or anything you can recommend so I'm going to start with my one like I said I've I've just started watching paranormal activity films again watched the first one in the cinema when it came out loved it watched it again see if it still holds up I think it does generally last night watched it like just before going to bed and had to like tuck my feet into my duvet You're not getting me, bitch. <laughs> as, soon as, as soon as we finish recording, I'm going to be diving into Planet Activity 2. But what yeah, about you? Okay. What have you been watching? Okay, so mine's kind of a little bit like coming in out of the sort of right-hand side. But um, I actually re-watched the 19, I think it's 1964 version of a film called Whistle and I'll Come to You. And it's an M.R. James book. Um, story. So M.R. James was like a classic British ghostwriter. He's probably one of our best. It's very sort of like sheep ghosts sort of wandering down the corridor going, woo. Um, but I, Whistle and I'll Come to You is basically about a man who has been isolated, very topical, for a long time. He's a sort of very clever man. He works very methodically by himself and he basically starts seeing things. And it's kind of down to this idea of like, has he been isolated too long or is this thing real? And it's, it's really interesting that yours is Paranormal Activity because if you watch, I would actually say double feature this shit because Paranormal Activity probably owes a lot to Whistle and I'll Come to You in the idea of how we do bed tricks and how we do the whole idea of, you know, our bed is our sacred space. What if someone comes into our bed? <gasps> wibble, wobble, wibble, wobble. So yeah, Whistle and I'll Come to You. I think it's 1965. It's a black and white. You, you can get it on YouTube. And they actually did a remake with John Hurt in 2013, which kind of over embellishes the story, but still has its merits. So yeah, it's a very classic. It's not, you know, it's not too fancy. It's very sort of basic ghost, but proper fucking scary. Enough to tuck your toes under the duvet. <laughs> We've got plenty of time at the moment to be at home watching oh God, films, so yeah. I'm definitely have to check it out. Yeah, again, thank you so much for you. spending your evening with us. Enjoy the rest of the time on set. Oh, I will, darling. I'll be doing so, my and, and your your incredible hotel room of the studios. Thank God the camera's on. <laughs> Everyone will be like, "Is she okay?" <laughs> no, thank you so much for having me, and 
I'm sure I'll be back to explain to you the logistics of going to B&Q and making your own saw machine. No, I'd love to love to <laughs> go into that. And yeah, so you can listen to Becky on her own podcast, The Witch's Brew. I'm going to be making a Twitter account for ourselves. I've, I've, I'm recording all of these before I've done all of that. But at this point, I would have done it. So I'll say I'll post links and everything on our socials accounts. So check it out. Because there is a might be out by the time this is out, but there's a very cool guest it's coming up. <laughs> I hope so. My God, we'd be really <laughs> slacking by then. Yes. <laughs> so you've been listening to Silver Screen Unseen. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Yeah, hopefully you make you want to kind of go back and rewatch Promising Young Woman because as we've said on every episode so far, if you like a film, watch it twice. I love that. <laughs> That was Rebecca Wilcox and myself discussing Promising Young Woman on episode two of Silver Screen Unseen. If you want to hear more from Rebecca, do check out the Witches Brew podcast. I'll post a link to them over on Twitter. As I mentioned earlier, you can find all the socials at An Earful Podcast. We're all under one roof in the Earful family, so you can reach us on there on Twitter and Instagram. Send us a DM if you've got any kind of recommendations of films to check out or if you just want to kind of have a chat about films. A shout out to the Earful guys as well. They have created a really great network of shows covering music, film and some bonus horror content. Keep your eyes peeled on the feed for a special on Spiral, which we are recording and putting out next week. Alex Smith is back with the Hardcore Project very, very soon. I believe the next episode will literally be a few days away by the time this comes out. And he's got a huge guest lined up. I'm really excited. I mean, I'm just excited for him personally. It's a band that he absolutely loves. So it's so nice to see that he's managed to secure this one for the podcast and yeah of course episode three of silver screen unseen will be with you in a few weeks time so keep an eye on the socials for that or follow us on your podcast listening platform that's going to be out in four weeks time that will be out on the 18th of june and the film we are discussing next is baby teeth if you listen to the first episode you'll hear that i mentioned how this film really gave me a kick up the ass really to start this film discussion podcast i wanted to do it for months and i watched that one and all I wanted to do was tell everyone about it. Anyone that was watching it, I was like, right, let's chat about baby teeth. So yeah, that kind of inspired the podcast amongst other things. Uh, but that was really the one that was like the drive to get this going. But yeah, you can watch baby teeth on Netflix, love it or hate it. We will be talking about the film in depth on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Silver Screen Unseen and I will see you on the next one.